Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I am Damian Abraham and once again I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show I have now been saying that to you a hundred times. So this is the 100th episode. So for this episode I have not one, but two guests that were not hugely involved in punk, but hugely involved in my life, uh, you know, creating my life. Uh, my parents, my mom and dad are the guests on today's show separately. Um, and so more on that in a second. And we've also got some other stuff planned because it's episode 100. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. It's also some past episodes, like the past 100 episodes. You can check it on there. Uh, you can also go over to Facebook.com and there's a Turned Out of Punk Facebook page that's run by my brother, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, once again for doing that, buddy. Um, and you can send him a message. He'll get the message to me. You can follow me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. And, uh, you can send me messages there. Uh, also, if you would like to support this show, head on over to iTunes. If you use iTunes and subscribe to this podcast, write a review, rate it, uh, tell your friends. But if you do use iTunes, you'll notice that we have some other podcasts in the turned out of punk family. There's uh, Turn Out of Punk Footnotes, which is hosted by myself and Chris O'Toole. You'll meet Chris O'Toole later on the show. If you haven't heard Chris O'Toole before, he'll be joining us for the intermission portion of today's episode. We don't normally have those, but today we do. Um, and uh, you'll also notice that there is a podcast on there called Clobberin' Time, hosted by my good friend Tom Bryan from Stereo Gum and myself. And each week we talk about pro wrestling, not every couple weeks because we're both kind of busy these days. So we're doing them as often as we can. And also coming out every couple weeks is Oil and Flowers, which is hosted by myself and my good buddy, DJ Buddha Blaze. And each week, Buddha Blaze, or each episode, I should say, Buddha Blaze and I kind of talk about, well, weed, cannabis. And we're both medical users. So uh, if you don't like cannabis, don't listen to that podcast. And I would also say if you don't like wrestling, don't listen to clobbering time. Um, and, uh, well, you probably could, you probably find joy in either one of these shows, even if you don't like what they're talking about, because that's the way it goes with these podcasts. They're just fun conversations between friends. Uh, so yeah, so you notice those podcasts, um, and you can tell your friends about those podcasts as well. And that's it. I think that's about it for today. Uh, you, whoo, whoo, here we are. Episode 100. We finally did it. We made it. I gotta say, I didn't think I'd make it this far. I really thought I'd probably get maybe a 12 in and kind of give up on it. But this has been a unbelievable ride so far. I've gotten to meet some incredible people, had some really awesome opportunities come out of it. And more than any of that, I've found out some stuff I didn't know, which is, you know, not saying that I know everything, but uh, that is what brings me the most joy on this show is when I find out something really cool that I had no idea about. So Whew. It has been a great journey. We will be doing more reflection on this in the uh, intermission portion of the show. But I guess I should talk about what is on today's episode. Today on the show, I have my mom, Cheryl Hastings, and my dad, Graham Abraham. Now, these two people are no longer married, but at one point they were married, and they produced my brother and I. And uh, at a certain point, I kind of got, you know, into punk music, and we will go into that with my dad. Dad, and then we will go into that with my mom. And both parents had, you know, 
different reactions. Both were supportive. I'm not going to ruin it. You will listen to it. This is our, these are fun episodes. You know, maybe a little self-indulgent. I'll give you that. Yeah, completely self-indulgent. But, you know, give me a self-indulgent episode every 100 or every 50 maybe, and I will be happy. So uh, I hope you enjoy hearing my mom and my dad talk. And once again, in the middle, we will have a special guest joining us. Chris O'Toole from Turn It A Punk Footnotes will be on the show. And we're going to be running down the uh, 10 top, or each of our top 10s of our favorite episodes so far and kind of talking about uh, some memories. You know, this is a real nostalgic episode. If this was a TV sitcom, this would be a flashback episode, except with a lot of new content. So it's not really a flashback episode. It has nothing to do with the uh, trope of a sitcom flashback episode. So I'm just rambling on. Uh, anyway, which is what you've gotten used to at this point, right? So why why should we break the formula for episode 100? <sighs> okay, everyone. This is a long episode. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy my mom and my dad on Turned Out a Punk. And Chris O'Toole. Unturned out of punk. All right, Dad. Okay. This is, uh, I've never interviewed you at all before. No. <laughs> and then I think that we've never, uh, I don't think we've ever had a recorded conversation before. Either. I don't think so. You're, so you're a rarity on the show. Ah. Because a lot of these people I've interviewed before. I'm probably older than anybody that's ever been on this show. I think Martin Mills is older than you. Yeah? Yeah, the first guest. Right. Martin Mills and... Uh, you know, Anthony Bourdain's a little bit younger, but oh, he's you know, a pup. Not, not by much, but um, I guess I'm going to start this off. You say you're older, so we're going to have to go back before this point. But I got to start off the way I start them all off, which is: Do you remember the first time you ever heard punk? Do you remember the first time you came across the genre? How'd you get into it? Uh, probably uh, the first time that I I really heard it was the Ramones, I guess. Mm -hmm. That was probably the first. And I, I, because they were sort of rock and roll arrived, I didn't really understand punk till I probably heard the Sex Pistols, I guess. That was probably it. But you were like in Montreal at the time, probably, right? Like late no, 70s? No, for punk. No, no, no. I was in Toronto. Um, I, I'd come through really liking English pub rock. Yeah. And then there, there used to be a store called The Record Peddler. I don't know if it's still going in Toronto. But they used to get a lot of English import records. Yeah. And so I was buying stuff like Spooky Tooth and yeah. bands like that. And then suddenly I heard the Ramones. And I thought they were very exciting. And then I used to also get English newspapers that talked about the Sex Pistols. So I thought I had to hear them. And when I heard it, I thought that was great. But that's, you, you bring up being English, and I guess people have picked yeah. it up from the accent. So when did you first come to North America? Well, I first came, I was born in Canada. Yeah. Uh, at the age of five, we went back to England. My father was in the army. And then uh, grew up in England until I was 21. Mm -hmm. And then came over to get a, or to do a graphic design, design contract in Ottawa. And then I was here, but going backwards and forwards a lot, working. And I was here till the late 80s when I went back to England and then Australia. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. But when you were in England, like you got into music pretty early, right? Pretty young, yeah. When yeah. did you first get into music, period? Um, probably the first stuff I ever really got excited about, which is pretty tragic, when you think about it, was instrumental records. Uh, people at, at that time, this would be the late 50s, mm -hmm. and people like Dwayne Eddy and The Shadows and stuff like that were excited. There weren't a lot of 
uh, vocal records I liked. I've always wondered that, and I, you know, we've never talked about this at all. But I was thinking it was because maybe people can get, couldn't get around the fact that there were people singing with their own accents. I think so. Well, a lot of English singers at the time, like Marty Wilde and people, and even Cliff Richard, in the yeah. movie, really had this sort of mid-Atlantic accent. Yeah. That, that now sounds really weird. Yeah. But at the time, it was sort of almost American. Yeah, but Dwayne Eddy and the Searchers, they had hits. They were like oh, yeah. radio yeah, rock. But, but they were, they were instruments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly so, yeah. But uh, the, the one guy, the first American guy I really got into rock and roll was Gene Vincent, mm -hmm. because he used to tour in England a lot. And then through him, he was on a touring show with Eddie Cochran. Mm -hmm. And so they were Ameri real American rockers. Yeah, yeah. To the English ones, yeah. And I guess that, like... I, Gene Vincent had such an impact, like you know, oh, like yeah. Ian Dury has that song. Yeah, sweet Gene Vincent. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, but I, he was touring. Right? Elvis didn't really tour. No, but this was, and he was touring like uh, smaller clubs. He wasn't, yeah. you know, touring. and they used to have these things in England, which was package shows, which were incredible. You know, and you would see fourteen acts on the show, mm -hmm. and they'd be a couple of American guys and a couple of really low-rise English guys, but then. You know, sort of some top names as well. And even the Beatles tours, when they start in the Rolling Stones, had Gene Pitney on and people like this. Did you see the Beatles? Uh, I saw the Beatles once at uh, Portsmouth Guildhall, but that's the only time I ever saw them. Yeah, because you, when you lived in England, you lived in Portsmouth. Yes. Right? And so that was like a, it was it like, I guess it was like a tough port town. People still it, it was a, tough It was town. a navy town. Uh, it's quite close to Southampton. And what was interesting with Southampton, a lot of the guys that worked on the merchantile, uh, mercantile marine, which is the non-navy marine, they would uh, they'd be stewards and they'd bring back American records. So very similar to Liverpool, which got a lot of mm -hmm. American records. So did we. So mm -hmm. which was great. So where would they? Would you buy them at like used stores then, or were these guys setting up shops selling these records? There, there, there was a guy who uh, was a steward on the Queen Mary, and he had a shop called the American Mag Shop, <laughs> okay. and he would have uh, uh, American mags. That's where I first came across Mad Magazine and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And then he would also sell forty fives, which had picture sleeves, which you never saw in England at the time. And stuff like this. So it's really quite interesting. I bought Clarence Frogman Henry there and stuff like this. I still remember. <laughs> so what was the first concert you went to? Um, I think the first big concert. Well, not even big. Like even for... Yeah. No, well, I went, um, I went to a school in Portsmouth where the, uh, the lead singer of a band called Manfred Mann, um, who's a guy called Paul Pond or Paul Jones, as he recorded came from that school. He was six years above me, but it became quite a, a loyalty thing to go and see them performing. So they had a residency at a place called Kimball's Ballroom, and we used to go and see them there. And at the same time, that morphed into a, a club called The Birdcage, which became a real mod action centre at the time. That's yeah. A pun. Starring bands like The Action. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. But uh, yeah. So that, that was really when I started. To, and that was before I actually went to any big concerts. It was more smaller venues, club mm -hmm. venues. Mm -hmm. But those were bands like Man for Man goes on to become kind of yeah, quite huge. popular. Yeah. Well, they changed the vocalist. It was the one. But uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they became a very big band. But they hadn't, they, their first record called Why Should We Not? They recorded, I don't know, probably about 66 or something like that. And so this was sort of pre that stage. Yeah. So what were they kind of like sonically then? 
They, they were a jazz band, really. Okay. They were a jazz blues fusion band. So was it blues rock? Like, what was the yeah. precursor to oh, for, for me, it was blues rock. And then sort of really uh, black music came in with the mod thing. Yeah. Very much, and so you had a mixture of that, and then, and then from then, Scar or Blue Beat and stuff like that. So yeah, progressed from there. So I guess like, is that why mod culture hits there? Is because the port has American Soul Records coming in? And I think probably so. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Yeah. So when do you remember when you first started seeing that sort of mod cultures start? People start dressing like that, or yeah, that oh, showing 65, up? 66, Yeah, definitely. And so, were you into it pretty much from that point, or like? Well, was I was into book? it, but I was more of a weekend mod because <laughs> uh, I, I, I could. I mean, uh, and then when I got into art college, it sort of mod sort of changed and morphed slightly away from that. It became very cultish there. You were either one or the other. Type yeah, of thing. yeah, like everything so, else. Yeah, I guess. yeah. but uh, and also, you know, it was alright if you lived in London. And you could walk down the road and get a new seat, suit very cheaply in Stanley Adams or one of these stores. But when you're in Portsmouth, you have to get get on a train, come up to London, have way too much to drink, go and buy a suit, try and make it home. So yeah, you know, it, it was to live the full mod lifestyle was pretty hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what were some of the bands that were kind of happening at that point when you really started going to shows? Um, I would say they, they were sort of really strange bands like the Steam Packet and stuff like this, which had Rod Stewart and Long John Baldry and Julie Driscoll and the Brian Organ Trinity. A lot of uh, a lot of those sort of bands that were really in the know type of bands. Uh, Spencer Davis Group and stuff like that. Where would that. you be finding out about that? Rod Stewart? I, I find it things. out from Melody Maker or Disc. Okay. Definitely. And were they, those they were like... Bibles because you didn't really see anything re reported in the local papers. There weren't really any music magazines apart from uh, teenage girl magazines, pinup mm -hmm. type music and film star magazines. But uh, music, it was definitely Melody Maker and New Music Smith. Well, like, were these bands putting out records or is it just like live? Records? Yeah, but under I mean bands. I I first saw. Uh, a band that I really loved in London called the Downliners Sect. Yeah, and they put out a uh, an EP was the first thing that, called Saturday Night in Great Newport Street, and I remember buying that at DeBell's Jazz and Record Store in London, being really pleased because it was like a limited edition thing because yeah. they paid to put it out. Yeah, but in general, uh, like I'm not sure if Steam Packet had any. Um, singles at the time rod stewart had uh good morning little schoolgirl as rod the mod okay and stuff like this but mm -hmm. it, there wasn't really uh mainstream records of that at the time you know but the, the stones were something that were already become a a pop band like mm -hmm. the beatles so uh yeah when did you get into the rolling stones uh i um a friend of mine at school his dad managed the Savoy Ballroom in Portsmouth and he got us in to see the Rolling Stones had just recorded I Can't Explain and oh, that's then, the who? Then, sorry uh, I can't explain. come on come on and, okay, yeah. uh, sorry <laughs> it, it's the age um, <laughs> but um, they just recorded Come On and they toured and they were at the Savoy Ballroom and this guy Stevens his dad got us into that I'd done a drawing of the band and uh, got backstage because of that. And Bill Wyman commissioned me to do 
another drawing of the band, a, a proper one, which I did, and that was the first commissioned artwork <laughs> that I ever did. Really? But I then had to go and present it to him, and it was, and I can't remember, but somebody will, either at the Odeon or Gaumont, Southampton, backstage I presented that, and then I had to pick up the cheque from Eric Easton, who was his manager at the time, with Andrew Lou Goldham, for £12. <laughs> that was, the, that was <laughs> the commission. Yes, we didn't dine out that night. How old were you? Uh, I was 17. That's pretty good to have a paid gig at 17 yeah, I for know. art. Yeah, I was, yeah, I know. Then, yeah. So were you doing other illustrations for other bands at that time? Yeah, I did. I did uh, at that stage, ironically enough, I did some for The Who as well. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't too much later that I actually... And I was doing various, but it was mainly for my own interest. And I was doing stuff to publicize dances and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so you're doing like flyers? Yeah, or that type of thing, yeah. So, like, with what were like kind of the drawings? Was it like, or was it like kind of those acid style posters? Was before that? that, it was before that. It was just strange stuff at that that time. And it, I got incredibly influenced later on by the San Francisco. Yeah. Poster guys, absolutely. And even Peter Max in New York. But I, uh, at this time, it was mainly just, you just did weird drawings because there was nothing else yeah. like it around. <laughs> yeah. so it was just a little different. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like, the Downliner <coughs> sect is a band that would kind of carry on through mm. the era. Like There would be a band that would survive to punk. Yeah. But I guess like everything else is kind of, everything's changing so quickly. Like yeah. scenes are like the mod thing was it overtaken by that sort of like well, UFO club I, scene? I, or? I, 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 yeah, I think exactly that's when it was taken. It became psychedelic, yeah. like crazy, because by that time it was sort of in inverted commas swinging London, and so you had the mods are sort of peeled off to become suede heads and quite violent and cherry red boots and all this sort of thing. Yeah, so the beginning of the skinhead Absolutely. kind of precursor, yeah. And um, whereas the other mods that were more interested in clothes and stuff like that morphed into shops like Granny Takes a Trip and Hung on You and all these things that made the magazines, which were sort of well-dressed hippies. Yeah. And, and it really meant that. And clubs like the Middle Earth and the Velvet Underground, clubs like that in London became the thing and all-night raves and stuff like this and that ushered in bands like Mark Bolan and all that on on that level mm -hmm. but then Hapshush and the Coloured Coat and people that were really far out on there. Yeah, where were Pink Floyd kind of? They were in the middle because Pink Floyd came out of Cambridge and they were the first band because I'd never seen San Francisco bands that I saw with a light show or anything like this and they were really quite scary. I mean, Roger Waters was very scary on stage at the beginning and uh, that was when Sid Barrett was with them. Yeah. And they were managed. They had uh, There were two bands that came out of that stable. One was Pink Floyd. Another one was called Pineapple Truck, which was Mick Jagger's brother, Chris Jagger. Oh, really? Yeah. He had a band. And, uh, but th th we booked them a few times because that, by that time I was at art college in Leicester, yeah. which was a pretty avant-garde music scene that we would book a lot of bands. And that Pink Floyd we booked three times, I think, there. But I first saw them at the Railway Hotel in Richmond. They were very, very good. But the light show was really, uh, if you used to sort of beforehand, you, you'd see bands which would have like three mics and then three lights on a mic stand <laughs> up high. And some of those would go on at the start of the set. And then, then, and then some really adventurous ones would have a strobe. Yeah. And then so suddenly when the Pink Floyd came in with this proper light show, it was amazing. Yeah. It really was different. Was, were psychedelic drugs around at that point or was it still yeah. just like weed? Yeah, but very... Weed was around, like the uppers and weed and everything came through the modern movement, yeah. definitely. Um, 
acid uh, was very much around in the in the late sixties in in that scene in the Floyd scene and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And was it like, I guess it'd be from pharmaceutical stuff in England, or would it yeah. be like, no, it's pharmaceutical. Pharmaceutical thing. <laughs> so, I guess like with. Were you kind of like when that stuff started happening with like Pink Floyd? Was that were you checking out some of the ska stuff that the Suedehead guys were into? Yeah, at the same time, yeah, Parallel Universe, yeah, for sure, definitely. Yeah, so who are the I was a Prince Buster fan, like yeah. crazy, you know, as you know. Yeah, that's where I got my records. As a child, <laughs> that's where I got my copies of his <laughs> records from. <laughs> but all oh, like Desmond Decker and yeah. people like that, very much so. And uh, it, 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 I always loved that. So I really like up music yeah and I, I that's the wonderful thing about that and as gradually that other fringe we were just talking about morphed into what became the stadium bands and the bands that were all like dungeons and dragons to music that, that drifted away from what i was interested yeah. in which is why i was so excited by pub rock and stuff like this because it seemed to be much more what it was all about mm -hmm. for me when you were lester though you were booking bands too yeah, right yeah. like that during that point where yeah. So what were some of the bands you booked? Oh, we, we booked, tra well, we certainly booked The Who, we booked Traffic, we booked uh, Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, we booked Cream, Yeah, a uh, whole lot of Crazy World of Arthur Brown. Jimi Hendrix was the on tour? Yeah, Jimi Hendrix, we booked, we booked Jimi, I, I wasn't the person that booked him, I was in the entertainment committee at the time, but the guy that booked them actually booked them for $75 a week, uh, 75 pounds, uh, for two sets. Uh, a week after Hey Joe hit, wow. it was fantastic. It came back, come back and do it. It, it was fabulous. He he was terrific. But yeah, that's the only time I ever saw him. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. oh, I guess he moved back to America. Kind well, of he did, but no, but he was also when I worked for Track Records, he was on their label. Yeah. But I never met him then. I I did publicity, but I never met him. Yeah. So what? Um, so like, what were some of the other bands? Like, uh, like oh yeah, no, wasn't there a time where you got chased by a skinhead at one of the shows? Oh no, I got uh, there was a. It was this place called Granby Halls in Leicester, which is like a, it was an old marketplace thing, but it's like a big aerodrome. Yeah. And there was a huge tower that we built to have the lights off in the middle of the place, and tons of skinheads raided it. And because I was the entertainment secretary, I had to be the first one up the ladder to tell them to get down. <laughs> and I'm halfway up this ladder, and this guy pulls out a knuckle duster and goes like this, and my girlfriend said, they're illegal, you know. <laughs> and the guy... <laughs> Entertainment secretary bites the dust. But yeah, what band was that? The the band that was on, I can't even remember who was on, but it was the, the Cream were definitely on the bill. Yeah. There. Oh, and the Foundations were on the bill. Okay. Yeah. Did you book Beefheart one time or no? No. Okay. I, I guess never he would. I loved later. his music, but I never, never. No, he was my first year art college. There was a guy called Ian Hebditch who was. Uh, who used to be sort of King Mod down on the South Coast, but then he really got into Beefheart. He absolutely, I remember him playing Trout Mask Replica for me. Oh, yeah. Stuff like this, yeah. He but was, did he tour England, I don't think? Or I think he went once, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I seem to remember Ian saying that the guitar player had a, a red leather frock coat and a red top hat. Sort of <laughs> Amazing, but I didn't see him. So I guess, when did you move to America? Canada, Canada. Uh, Canada? Again. Uh, well, I was backwards and forwards a lot, but when I actually uh, moved, I moved here. Were you in, doing like, the, was it Oz? Were you, had you done the stuff for Oz? I done it, yes, I did Oz. Well, after I finished art college, I went down to London and I was employed to do uh, three ads for various artists. Well, first of all, I went down, I had a phone call from a guy called Peter Rudge, who I'd worked with 
booking bands and he'd become the tour manager for the who but he was working for and he later became for the rolling stones um but he was working for track records mm -hmm. and he said that they were launching a new band and would i be interested in coming down and doing a poster drawing for them for the launch and i said oh that'd be great it'd be really interesting and i was in the process of moving from leicester and so my girlfriend and i went to a mill in an old beautiful old mill in Liphook in Hampshire which is where Thund it was owned by the Who but Thunderclap Newman were rehearsing and living okay there and it was McCulloch and it was it was incredible but anyway so we did that and through that they asked me to do other stuff and come on and do stuff for Marsha Hunt and Jimi Hendrix and that sort of thing just three ads I guess so were you doing like drawing these ads or like drawing and designing them and yeah and so, like, at that point, did you also, I guess, were taking other illustration gigs for, like, Oz? And yeah, I, I did a, a series of um, illustrations of rock guys for a company called Linden Artists in London, which I'd forgotten about. And then somebody emailed me about a year ago and said, was I the Gray Abraham that did these drawings of the Beatles and stuff like that? And I said, yeah, because he just bought them at auction. <laughs> so, <laughs> like the originals, or were they the... No, they, they were, they, they did on handmade paper, proofs of them. Okay. But no, so, and I'd forgotten I'd even done them. But anyway, he sent me copies of them, and I realised what they were. And then Oz Magazine, uh, I can't remember how I first got to it, but Richard Neville, who had who's just died, who edited Oz Magazine, called me up to go and see him, and I went and... Um, Illustrated for Oz issue four, um, three sections, three sections, yeah, of the magazine, and uh, it, it was great to do. It didn't make a lot of money, but it was really good to be associated with that at the time. Was that like the first underground one in England, or was there other ones? Uh, no, um, oh shoot, what's it called? I did a drawing for. I can't remember the name. There, there was a newspaper, International Times. Okay, International Times was the first real underground paper uh, run by a guy called Miles and a guy called Mike McKinney was the art editor who later went to Rolling Stone magazine. Okay. Many, many years ago. But uh, it was really interesting. I did one thing for them and I did some stuff at the same time for the the Mirror that had a, a weekend supplement in England and I illustrated the Keith Waterhouse page for that for illustrations and I did it one week and an unknown artist called Terry Gilliam did it for the other weeks. <laughs> Terry Gilliam went on to a lot greater things than uh, Abraham. But, uh, no, so we alternated weeks for the Waterhouse page for this art director called Sue Wade. Yeah. So you did also, when you, uh, for Oz, you did that illustration of the guy from the Process Church. Yeah, Robert de Grimston. And that... Uh, that got me... Uh, Robert de Grimston, it was a very strange... It was a church... I, I, I can say anything on this kind of... Yeah. There was a church that preyed on rich children or rich uh, heirs of things who would tithe their money to this church. And they had offices on Park Lane in London. And the place was... People walk around in robes, and it was it was like a bad episode of the Avengers. People <laughs> would walk around in robes, and they'd have the dogs that were called Satan and stuff like this. And uh, they got very pissed off about the article in Oz, and they they virtually took out a contract on the writer and everything like this, and wow. I, which I later found out quite a lot later. But yeah, wow, yeah, that's quite funny. But uh, that was in the early days of Oz before Oz got really good you know when they did the school kids issue and all this sort of thing but still like that the process also that's the one that parliament funkadelic 
has all the stuff in their first record about. Oh, does it? Yeah. yeah. They put on a music festival too. There's a book about their music connections that just came out. They they were really scary people. Yeah, it's like one of those. There's like a bunch of religions, I guess. Church of Satan, yeah. that one, it all kind of came around and have connections yeah. to Scientology, absolutely, allegedly yeah. too. That, oh, and that was very much what this was. Yeah, and this guy Robert de Grimston looked. He he really thought he was Mephistopheles, you know. I mean, he, the way he dressed and the way he. Was. Yeah, well, he did a great drawing of him. Thank you. It really <laughs> captured. He them. didn't think so. No, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> so, at which point did you? Surely, that's when you moved to North America, right? Yeah, that, right? yeah, I moved then, and. Uh, I, I took, uh, first of all, working in Ottawa uh, for uh, Information Canada. Was it a pretty small town at that point? It, it was. There was a, a, a club called Lubu, yeah. which was really incredible. I mean, they had great bands and great live music. And Who were some of the bands that would come through that you would see at that point? They, they, I mean, it would be Canadian bands like Golden Life, but people like Taj Mahal and yeah, stuff yeah. like this. So there was a good mix. Yeah. But then there was a record store run by a guy called Harvey Glatt called Treble Clef, and he later became a promoter and everything like this, but his sort of main record buyer guy was a guy called Brian Murphy, who became a DJ, and he was unbelievable amount of knowledge of music. And we used to go to his place, he had a wonderful album collection, and you know, he played me sort of lots of different bands that I didn't know about. I mean, American bands like Moby Grape and mm -hmm. stuff like this, which I think who I thought were incredible. I'm one of the four people in the world that think are incredible. <laughs> but uh, no, and, and that was really interesting. And so Ottawa, although it was a bit of a backwards then, because of the treble clef and Hibu, it, it, it was great. You know, you definitely saw something. Yeah, like in punk hits there <coughs> at the exact same time, if not before <coughs> in a real way, than in Toronto. Right? Yeah, like yeah. there's like bureaucrats, the action, red squares. Melanie Kay, who was a guest on the show, her mom ran a gallery, oh, uh, really? like a salon gallery performance art space, yeah. and would book Annie Sprinkle and stuff in the late 70s wow. stuff there. Um, but, like, so what was, I guess, musically, though, what was kind of happening, uh, uh, I guess, with Gordon well, Lightfoot, Rush? Yeah, I, yet, I, Rush. I must admit, I was very an Anglophile yeah. at that time. I would buy import when I moved to Toronto, anyway, I'd buy imported... Records. I mean, I, I. That's where I used to have the David Bowie dress album. I mean, I bought yeah. that in Canada. Yeah. And stuff like this. And uh, I really got into the pub rock bands, and I was also on business going back to England a lot. So I was going to clubs like the Mean Fiddler and stuff like. Oh, that. so you saw some of those pub rock bands? Oh yeah. Yeah, so do you ever correct. see like Dr. Fielder? Dr. Fielder, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, with my very good friend John Nickel. Yeah. Oh yeah, and lo lots of. Lots of those bands at that time uh, I saw in smaller venues, which was terrific. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, like, did you see, actually, would you have seen Hawkwind then? But that uh, been before. Uh, right? I saw Hawkwind before that, yeah. At the days with the lovely Stacia and my silver machine days of <laughs> Hawkwind. I, I, never, I must admit, it, it, and I had many rows with my friend John Nickel about it, I, I never really liked Hawkwind, as yeah. I say. They, for me, they weren't. Quite the thing. Did you see the deviants and the pink fairies and stuff? No, 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 never saw that. I say very in the seventies, very early on. I went when um, I was going back. I was doing advertising for Air Canada, and I went back and I went to the um, concert for Bangladesh at the Oval Cricket Ground in nineteen seventy-one. Yeah, in England, which was amazing because I'd been out of the English 
music scene and seeing things. And there were all sorts of bands. Like there was Mott the Hoople and yeah. bands like that and bands like America. But then, just it was about... Just as the light was fading and Rod Stewart came on with the faces and was absolutely unbelievable. It was the most amazing show I'd ever seen. Everybody thought, wow, that's incredible. And then The Who came on and blew it right <laughs> off the stage. It was dark by that time. It was the, one of the best concerts I've ever, ever seen. It was fantastic because nobody thought anybody could do a better performance than Stewart, and, including myself. And then The Who came they were just absolutely Where? crazy and moonwalk through the drums and he carried Daughtry off on his shoulders and it, it, but it was bizarre it was fantastic what was the first time you saw the who uh savoy ballroom same place as i saw the stones yeah exactly the, yeah that same thing and that was looking back on it i thought that that was really early on in their career and i thought keithman was like 14 I mean, he looks such a young kid. Yeah, but I guess he'd already been in another band, right? Wasn't oh, I, I think so. Well, they, yeah, they, uh, well, the, the high number, he was in a surf band before that. Yeah. Because he's a surf, or was a surfing fanatic. But he looked so bloody young. It was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I guess he, like, was one of those kind of, like, timeless, yeah. childlike faces. Well, he died pretty young. As died well. pretty young, absolutely. <laughs> um, hard partying. Yes. So where did you, I, I guess, did you see them a lot? Were they the band that you kind of followed the most? Later? I, I saw them, no, I've probably seen them about 10 times, something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. at various stages in the career, but I haven't seen them for a long, long time. They were good. I saw oh, them yeah. this year and they were amazing. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I saw them in Toronto last, I think when Kenny Jones was drumming for them. Okay. Yeah. But this is Zach Starsky's now drumming for them. Oh, is he? Yeah, Ringo oh, yeah. Starsky. Yeah. And they were awesome. Like, it was a really great show. Zach Starsky cropped up a really bizarre thing. I got someone to do... When I was living in London in the 80s, I got a phone call from a, a guy, Canadian guy, who said, I'm doing stuff with this new band. We're recording at Abbey Road, and it's called The Wise Guys. And he said, you've got to come along. And it was... I can't remember... So Zach Starsky was on drums, and one of the guys from the Turtles was in there and it was like this straight nothing I don't know what ever happened to them and I never got the job but uh, it was really bizarre that was wow that was the last time stuck he's called the wise Guys. he played in the he played with um, Liam Gallagher for a while oh, yeah. and I think he did maybe an Oasis for a moment as well I'm pretty sure mm. and then but yeah no he's killing in the who He's definitely can do oh, those. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he can do those yeah. Keith Moon parts. Because Kenny Jones was a fabulous mod drummer, but it'd be pretty hard to fill that thing yeah. right after Moon. You know? Yeah. The only guy that could have done it, but I think alcohol blew his mind, uh, was Mitch Mitchell, from the, who was with the Riot Squad and then with Hendrix in the original experience. Yeah. He used to be with this band called the Riot Squad, and he really started that form of drumming that Who does with the overhand sticks and everything. It's incredible. Yeah, and no, that's yeah. like crazy kind yeah. of, you know. It's funny because like when Craig Ferguson was on, he's like, I don't, I don't like him as a drummer. Like mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, for drummers, yeah. I think it's like you either like him or you yes. you're not into it. Oh, I, I just I just thought it's such a show. I mean, it's really sad when you see the kids are all right. By the time you see that, and he, he's the brain's gone, and he's trying to clap in time. Yeah. And, oh. Well, I imagine he had done a little bit of partying by the time they got to the clap track. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Barry Wentzel, who's a photographer, uh, who was the photographer for New Musical Express, he has wonderful stories of Keith Moon. Uh, because he was their main photographer at that time and just incredible stories he took them around in full german regalia to pubs vivian stanchel and keith moon to pubs in the east end of london and unbelievable anyway yeah, 
can only imagine what those photos were like. Yes. Uh, where'd you go? Uh, so I guess you moved to Toronto yeah. after being in Ottawa. And what was Toronto even like? That's a pretty, like you read the Treat Me Like Dirt book and it makes Toronto seem like a ghost town after nine o'clock back well, then. Well, I think it was, but it was funny. It was a big jazz town. Yeah. And you used to get some, re- and I'm not a jazz fan, but th- there was a real jazz circuit, which also you got some incredible American blues singers mm-hmm. that would come along with that. Mm-hmm. And once again, they, there were clubs Certainly in the 70s that started out, the Edgewater Hotel on Church at the Edge yep. was great. I mean, I, first, I saw Squeeze there, I saw Elvis Costello there, I saw the police there, and all those sort of bands used to play those. But those were like jazz clubs by the, when you first moved Originally, to Originally, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's Originally. awesome. Well, I guess it makes sense, all the wrecks yeah. and stuff is yeah. still... Oh, oh, exactly. And uh, Yeah, the Cock Door was a famous, blooming down on Young Street, it was a famous jazz venue. Uh, yeah, and I, yeah. Also, the horseshoe, I guess, would have been doing yes. more country and yeah. blues at that point, right? Or I've country. always loved that bar. I think yeah, that, that that I think is the the place. So, what were like the local bands that were kind of? Was there any local bands that you kind of were seeing when you were coming here? Or is it I'm all? I'm trying to think of what. They were. Not really that I remember. I'd probably get killed for this, but no, not like I guess that Yorkville scene had kind of died off. Well, that was very much a folky hippie scene. Yeah, By the time yeah. I got here, it was very much. You know, it had been through the. The Neil Young, John Kay, Joni Mitchell type of thing. And so I got here after this. And there was a, a band out of Ottawa that... I can't remember. There was a band called The Sparrows. Okay. And a couple of others. But not really. No, it was more... I was more interested in records mm-hmm. or small clubs. I've, I've always preferred small clubs to large venues. Yeah, so like I guess like you'd heard the Ramones prior to coming to Toronto... Was that no? Okay, no. you were in Toronto at yeah. that point. So yeah. you're hearing the Ramones, hear the Sex Pistols. When did you start seeing that stuff start cropping up in Toronto or noticing? Um, I saw it. I can't remember who they were. There was a show at the CNE with Blondie and the Clash. Okay, uh, on the same bill and Black Uhuru. Yeah. Um, but not. Re- I, I guess with clubs like the Edge, definitely, but not so much punk bands as uh, pub rock bands yeah if you or yeah Ian Dury I mean I saw yeah twice here but did you start like when did you start seeing like because you saw the vile tones right oh yeah so when yeah. did you start seeing those types of people showing up around town or like start noticing be, that punk was yeah, actually after happening? 1975 I guess it was yeah because um it was battered wives yeah uh well it's, uh, who's uh teenage head with yeah man. and um with the bandaged head. Oh, Nash the Slash. <laughs> Nash the Slash. That's it. Yeah, so do you remember, like, what was the first time you actually went to, like, you'd heard the Ramones Sex Pistols, what was the first time you saw that locally, went to see a show? I, I saw the Violetones quite early on, but I can't remember when it was exactly. Do you remember what that show was like at all? Or It was good, but I, I thought it was Let's Be Punk as well. So really? Like, yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, I thought so. But anyway, that was just it. Because I, like, you just hear about how their shows at that point, like, maybe this, but, like, he would cut himself on stage, he would, like, stab himself with pens. Yeah, but that's what I mean. It was sort of a bit, you know, being outrageous to be outrageous. Yeah. Whereas what I thought about the Sex Pistols, and everybody has different opinions, I thought they were outrageous. (laughs) Yeah, but like, but John Lydon wasn't doing that to himself on stage. No, no. But like, and had you seen no. like the Stooges or anything? No. Like, so like no. that would have been. Yeah. I just wanted that to me would have been at that time. 
I would have thought like no, but I, I mean, don't forget, I'm I'm older, and I had come from a scene where Crazy World Arthur Brown used to set his head on fire on stage every day. So. That's true. So you know, there are. <laughs> That's true. Uh, were those were those shows at that time uh, in Toronto violent at all, or were they like I guess no, it, 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 moshy violent, but yeah, not, pogoing. I guess yeah. at that point, That's yeah, and you know, spitting and. Stuff. But once again, because it was you're supposed to do that, you know, mm-hmm. save up your phlegm, we're going to a puncture. <laughs> so, what were like the uh, the new wave bands you started getting into? Like, I know Ian Dury definitely. Did he play Toronto? Did you see him? Yes, he did. Yeah, uh, he, I thought he was amazing. The first time I heard him, uh, somebody sent me the record from England. Uh-huh. I I thought it was absolutely incredible, and I thought now here because I like the humour, I liked how tight the band was, and I, I just thought it was all-round terrific because he wasn't taking himself too seriously. But all that lot that came out of Stiff Records, like Nick Lowe, I thought was amazing, Dave Edmonds, I mm-hmm. thought was terrific. So there was a whole lot of those people. Uh, Captain Sensible, I know he came out of... Uh, what's the band? But The punk band he came from. The Damned. Yeah, that was it. You know, I know he came from that, but it, I really found he broke out when he got to Stiff. Had you ever seen Kilburn and the High Roads? You no, I hadn't. And I didn't get the Kilburn and the High Roads album until... After I'd discovered Ian Dury. Well, they've reissued them all, I yeah. think, after Ian yeah, Dury kind of it. broke. Because yeah. I don't think they were ever that big. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Uh, definitely not. On good old Dawn Records, yeah. the first one. So was that, um, I guess that's the scene you kind of go to, is that more kind of new wave stuff, right? Yes, definitely. I but I never got into the uh, the glitzy new wave thing. I never got into Spandau Ballet and stuff like that, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't really like that. Yeah, and hard new wave. We're calling it on this show. Oh yes, that's the stuff you're into more. The hard new wave. The hard new wave. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was more into the hard new wave. Yeah, exactly. Not the soft <laughs> new wave that would come later. <laughs> because, like, I guess you know that's certainly reflecting the records that you know I would kind of like dig through. Yeah. Um, when when um, after you'd moved to England, and I would find all these like new wave records, but then the one that I found that always blew my mind was the Battered Wives LP, who later changed their name. Yes. Rather tasteless yes, name yeah, to yes. the wives, but uh, the LP re- like release party edition of their first album. Did you go to that show? I can't remember. Chris Gibb in the band was yeah. a friend. So, okay, so that's why. So would you? How did you know him? <laughs> Through this friend of mine, John Nickel. They were all English painter and decorators. Okay. So, um, and John Gibb, his brother, had a. A store, and I can't remember the name of it, but a very early contemporary fashion store in the seventies, and on Young Street. Oh, really? So yeah, yeah. So it was like Le Chateau and this other one. So yeah, yeah. So they were very, but they were they were expat English guys, but they. Oh, I didn't know they were English. Yeah. Well, because that one, I think he's married to, or not, he's married to his daughter is married to Pat Smear. Oh, really? I think one of the guys in that band. He was oh, a lead singer, Chris Gibb right? and John Gibb. No, I can't remember who was I, I can't remember. Okay. I tell you. But did you see them live? Or did you go to the Oh, yeah. 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 And so, so like, what was that? I guess we were kind they of were older, good. though, right? Yeah, I thought they, they were good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was much older than Target Group. Yeah. They, um, they were really, because they could play. Yeah. <laughs> you know. 
Yeah, I, guess I, I mean, that's one of the great myths about punk, I think, is, uh, when you talk to people about it and they say, oh, the Sex Pistols, yeah, they couldn't play guitar. Well, Steve Jones can play brilliant guitar in the Sex Pistols. You know, the, uh, the fact that Sid Vicious was not the world's greatest bass player yeah. is no doubt. But Glenn Matlock, I mean, yes. Yeah, no, I think that's the thing about that Sex Pistols record. It's like, it's perfect. Like, it's, yeah. it's tight beyond you know, tight, and it's yeah. like a million guitar tracks being played but it, it in lockstep. A lot of people propagate a thing that punk music were people, a group of guys who couldn't play instruments to got together and do a record. Well, I'm sure there's an element of that, but there's also some very good musicians. That <laughs> yeah. Did you see, like, Simply Saucer ever? Do you no. know? Okay. Because they, they were a band that I think, you know, they started in the mid-70s and there's this weird experimental proggy. Right. Type band, but then they kind of just become a punk band when right. punk starts happening, just because that was the scene that they kind of, I guess, became right. part of. Were were there other uh, bands from that time period in Toronto? That you well, Carol Pope and Kevin Staples, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they rough trade were. Uh, they predated two punk, I guess, right? Yeah, they did. I mean, they were really ahead of their time, and in attitude as well. They were great, you know. And they, once again, musician-wise, I mean, Kevin Staples, great musician, and you know, they had John Anderson on drums, who was incredible when and you and. Uh, Bunny before that, so yeah. Pretty nuts that you did a Pepsi commercial with them. Yes, I know. That's so weird. <laughs> like, I just think, like, I just can't even think what the equivalent would be today. Well, it was pretty... It, we, we were the first ones out to do the sort of music tie-in type things like this. So we sort of pushed the envelope with that one. <laughs> well, that would have been like, yeah, because there's like no one, you know, like, what was yeah. what was that pitch like? Did you take, like, executives from Pepsi to see oh, yeah. them play? Oh, yeah. And we'd, we'd done the whole, we had to not only pitch to the gentleman that ran Pepsi here, a great guy called Clive Minto, uh, but we flew down to New York, we had to pitch it to Pepsi headquarters, and Clive had taken a lot of persuading to do it, and on the way back, uh, we were kind of playing, and you get the Toronto Papers, and it was during the CNE or something, and Carol Pope had been on stage with Rough Trade, and she started off with, well, bands might have given you a hard-on, but I'm going to give these girls a wide-on. <laughs> and that was the only thing, and I've got the President of Pepsi sitting next to me reading it, just realised he's committed to all these commercials. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, but yeah, like... You're saying that's before Pepsi had started because that would become Pepsi's kind of like yeah, calling well, card for a long that, time. It was about two years, year, year and a bit before Michael Jackson. Yeah, before the, which I guess like was a far less of a gamble than well, it Carol was Pope because and, well, well, that that was the whole thing. The pitch was that we wanted to align Pepsi with leading edge minds, kids. Yeah, but that's all well and good till you try and sell in the campaign to the bottler who is very, very wealthy in general and uh, doesn't listen to music at, at all. And so his kids, who are probably much younger, have mentioned Michael Jackson. So, oh, yeah, let's get Michael Jackson. He's big and stuff like this. Yeah. So instead of getting relevant music to people that really like music, we ended up getting big names and stuff like that. Yeah, but I guess Michael Jackson would have been, like, the relevant artist at the time, right? Like, the most relevant artist? Like Well, relevant in like, one like, way, but not to early adopters of new things. No, no but, like, yeah, but, like, I guess By at that point it would have been, like, Grandmaster Flash or The Clash. Yeah. Like, yes, yes. had so yes. been... Oh, no, for sure. And the, Jackson, the problem was, they did in the once. Yeah. Which, which is good, but then three times, you know, he's just... Yeah. Well, we became like well. Pe that's the thing. Britney Spears too. They kind of yeah. like 
you know, got on board with for a long time. Well, they got on board with Britney Spears because uh, Coke got on with Christina Aguilera. Okay. So we each had to have a Mouseketeer. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's basically what it was. But that, so I, I guess it's like, it's just so weird to think of like, yeah, like a singer who's very, very openly gay at that point, very outspoken. Uh, you know, for for Pepsi, that would then freak out for oh, yeah. Madonna's "Like a Prayer" video yeah. years later. Well, you used to have to; they'd have to sign a uh, morals contract and stuff like this. Okay, so wait, so they they signed one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's awesome. Oh yeah, that's awesome. But uh, yeah, well, and you know, it, it's a, the the commercial we did with them was directed by Jeremiah Chechik, who did National Lampoon's Vacation and various things. Oh, whoa. Uh, yeah. So, oh, I had no idea. Yeah. He's That's a, very good, very good guy. Well, and we're like John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd kind of hanging around Toronto a lot that around that point, right? Yeah. Aykroyd a lot. Not, I never saw Belushi, but Aykroyd, see, because basically his, um, one of his great friends from Kingston, X-Ray McRae, uh, ran the horseshoe, but even back then, he ran the horseshoe. Yeah. Well, no. In yeah, when he Aykroyd was hanging around here, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, before that, Aykroyd, I think he had the club four five oh nine on Queen Street, and uh, there was a cop called Richard Crook who was the beat cop there, and they ended up starting restaurants together, like X Rays and Crooks and all these things. So I Aykroyd think all of them were featured in Coneheads. I probably. I think they're all. Yeah, in that movie. became a family affair. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think they're all in Conan's in one sequence or not. But uh, it's. Um, but they really had it. So you'd see Aykroyd a lot in, around the thing in that because he had business interests. Yeah, yeah, and so I guess that whole Second City kind of national lampoon yeah. comedy thing was very yeah. close. And the Kingston mob. <laughs> and the Kingston mob, yeah. <laughs> so. What kind of, you know, you kind of get out of that music at a certain point? Like, what was the bands that kind of... I mean, because I remember as a kid, uh, you, you you were going to, like, parties in England, like rave parties or something, like, very, yeah. when I was very young. Yeah, went, went went to some and stuff like that. But I also, I got really into Irish music. Oh, like the Pogues type thing? Uh, yeah, or like... <laughs> definitely the Pogues, but uh, Mary Coughlin and okay. people like this. Because, uh, as I said, I've always liked music in clubs rather than stadiums mm -hmm. and uh, the, there were some really great even bands like Hot House Flowers before the Pogues and stuff like that I really liked Irish bands so what did you think you know like this is around the time I'm born right. in like 79 um, so what did you think you know 13 years later when all of a sudden I started you know being like I'm into this punk stuff well that I thought was great what I what I did get a little apprehensive about when you were really into Vanilla Ice and <laughs> yeah. uh, stuff like that. I was this. never that. Tristan was... Oh, come on, don't you? No, because I'm trying to no, remember... That was my brother. No, but Vanilla Ice was definitely... <laughs> no, of the time, certainly. But I think I was more to Criss Cross was more my, <laughs> right. my one a little no, bit. No, all I said to you, I, you know, I've always said to you, if you and I like the same music, something's wrong. There's yeah. a generation problem there because nothing's going to progress and I also said to you and I said try and the interesting thing that I found was when I really liked uh, the song Stay by the Hollies but I liked it way better when I found out it was originally done by Morris Williams and the Zodiacs and I found the original version of mm -hmm. it and so I just said don't always take the 
the latest version, there's some really interesting things before that might not be the pop one. So that was it. No, you liking your own sort of music, 100%. I, I mean, we have traipsed around L.A., uh, trying to buy Guns N' Roses jackets that's, for your brother. That is definitely for, for, that's definitely for Tristan. I said, for your brother. <laughs> Guns N' Roses <laughs> white leather jacket. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, Axl Rose studded at the back. <laughs> yeah. We could say this because he's not here. No, I don't think I brought it up to him on his unaired episode of this podcast <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, like, no, and you, I remember you getting me the Motorhead box set. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're like, you know, and, and when you lived in England too, because, like, you and Mom, when did you get divorced? It would have, I've been in grade five, so... The 80s. No, I think it was, like, 91? One? Yeah, it might have been like that. End of the 80s. Yeah. Um, and, uh, no, it was before that. Was it? Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I was in Australia by 91. Yeah, but I think it, I would have been grade five, so I'm trying to think of the math. I think it would have been... Maybe 90 then, but it would have been, like, right, right around then. Um, I remember... Uh, like we would go and visit you in in England, and you had the place, and like right yeah. down the street was Lemmy from Motorhead oh, yeah. drinking at that bar. Yeah, always he he was there, and if you went straight down Ladbrook Grove, it was the best scar and blue beat record shop in the world. It was just fantastic. It's still I go back there sometimes. Yeah. It's still a cool neighborhood. There's oh, still yeah. like rough trade. I never even knew the entire time that you lived there, and we were coming to visit you. That rough trade records, I didn't know what it was. It was yeah. right around the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's where it all, <laughs> it all starts for me, too. Well, there was also, because I used to go to the Mean Fiddler a lot, there was a, the guy that owned that started a club um, in, right in that area. There was a basement club, and I can't remember what it was called, but Big Audio Dynamite oh, really? uh, had a residency there. Oh, whoa. So that was the first time I saw that. What was that? Were you... Which I have to do, because I knew I was going to be doing this thing, uh, pull you up on the fact that this show is called Turned Out a Pun. Absolutely. Big Audio Dynamite. The what? first three lines of that song are, Mummy was a hostess, Daddy was a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so it does work. <laughs> um, no, I think it's from. The, it's definitely from that song, but it's also just, I like the turn of phrase. You know, oh, yeah, like you Turned Out it's a right. Pun. It's all right. But no, it, it, it certainly is... A little bit inspired by them too yeah. but uh yeah you like always love that area yeah and oh yeah well I, I thought it was the most alive musically i mean it's become incredibly gentrified but as you know the nottingham gate Car- gala was there and everything yeah like they still have the carnival there right yeah nottingham yeah. carnival still goes on yeah but yeah no it's definitely it has changed yes so much <laughs> like bigger money yeah. yeah no longer have that uh punk T-shirt store up on the we were used to buy those spike bracelets yes, yeah. up the street anymore and stuff like that. But uh, the other thing I want to talk about in the neighborhood is when uh, the first time I went to England when you and mom were still together. Right. Uh, we stayed at the hotel, the Portobello, Portobello Hotel, and Damon Alburn worked in the bar there. Yeah, he was the barman. Yeah. Yeah, he was the bartender pre-blur. Yes. And well, he just he was in a band and they they just reformed the new Blur while he was still working there. Okay. But his dad had played in a band, you said, right? No, like his dad it? used to be either a tour manager or something for Soft Machine. Oh, really? Yeah, that was his uh, whole thing. His dad was in the music business, but either a tour guy or something like this for Soft Machine. For Soft Machine, though? Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. like one of the best possible bands to yeah, work Yeah, well, that's what he told me. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. He was a really nice guy. I mean, it, you know, I told him Blur was a stupid name. 
Yeah. Mm, really bright. I've you. done that a few times. Yeah, I know you told me <laughs> fucked up was a I terrible did, name I too. I did a terrible name. Don't get anywhere. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I never trust an my, ad man. I know for my marketing skill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, that's good company, you know. That maybe that's blessed. Um, but yeah, no, I remember him being nice. I remember going there. Oh, it, it was great. That that bar because it, it ran a twenty four hour bar. If you were a guest in the hotel, and uh, the stray cats would stay there and they jam with someone else in the bar, stuff like this. It was great. Yeah, uh, yeah. David Bowie stayed there one time. Yeah, twice, a couple of times. I think both David Bowie and Jagger had one of his honeymoons in that hotel. Whoa. That's a rock hotel. Not together at that time. That no. was dancing in the street. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, way, way before, way <laughs> yeah. after, way before. But um, uh, so I guess like yeah, then it gets to the point where I get into punk at that point. And I remember you were like you're definitely cool about it, except for Straight Edge. You did not like the Straight I, Edge I thing not, at all. I don't like. Amazingly enough, I don't like branding. I love it in the business that I'm in, but I really didn't like you wearing an X on your hand. And saying that was straight advertising, I, you'd be straight edge. That was fine, mm. but I just find it judgmental doing that. But that's just my eccentricity. No, I think for you know, as a kid, it definitely uh, you know helped to be part of something. Like, yeah, you know, oh, like it was I'm a sure. Positive peer pressure yeah. kind of thing too. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, it, it's better to have the than have junkie written on your hand, you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I think it was the first time that I had ever found though a rebellion that you didn't get. <laughs> yeah, well, like every, well, it, probably because it was pretty opposite <laughs> of what I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess that's probably the case too. I remind you the first line of the, the audio dynamite. Song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that was, you know, like it was something that, you know, and it wasn't like you and mom did drugs around me. No, but, never. But definitely, you know, I knew that you guys drank. And so, and I think by that point, you had been open about the fact that you had done drugs. Mom would continue to lie to me for several <laughs> more years before now becoming uh, my uh, my uh, pod buddy. But I think, like, uh, that was, like, the first time I had found something that was a true rebellion. Yeah, oh, I, I, that was great. I mean, as I say, what I don't think anybody in their right mind as a parent wants to produce a mini-me. I'm kind of hoping I have three mini me's. <laughs> oh, you won't up the road. You won't. No, it's it's great to see your children's own personality come out. I mean, that's the amazing thing about it. Yeah. So I think that was, that was really really good. Yeah. No, I think that you know, like, and it was. I think kind of coming through that, especially because Tristan at the time was definitely not on the straight edge path. <laughs> that you know now all coming here uh, you know coming on the other side of it now as adults yes it's amazing to see that we've all kind of wound up on very similar pages yeah yeah it is oh definitely you know like all four of us you know like you know as, as no longer held together by marriage you and mom yeah but like we're all very much kind of like at the same place yeah i think so yes you know? yeah oh, definitely definitely uh, well dad we've kind of almost come to the hour okay you know, we could go back and talk more music and stuff like that, but... Uh, well, no, this has been very interesting. Gosh, I'm glad my memory held out. I think it held out really well, too. I was surprised at, like, you know, how much you'd uh, remember Just and recall. Just tell me where I live now. I yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, it's like, and, you know, and I, I guess I could say this off air, but, like, I just love you, and I love the fact that you and Mom always supported me, you know? Like, uh, you definitely... You know, never thought, like, I never thought that Fucked Up would become something that I'd wind up 
no. making a career out of, but it was something that I always felt kind of, uh, and it wasn't like you guys were at the front of the sh- stage buying all the merch either, but at the same uh, time, it was like there was always support. Like, I always yeah. never felt oh, yeah, like we went, we went to see, no, I, I, I need us to say, you know, we're, uh, certainly for myself, anyway, I'm sure my mother as well, incredibly proud of what you've done. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, really incredible. And as recently as this weekend, reading the reviews from uh, Riot Fest in Chicago, it, it really makes the old heart kiss and passion <laughs> when, they, when you read that. So it's great. Well, yeah. that's the one thing we did gloss over, then, is the fact that I'm not the first musician in our family. Oh, well, I want to gloss over. I, I, as you know, my career in drumming with bands started very early on and after about a week and a half they decided to be much better to uh, that I publicized the band as opposed to because <laughs> you didn't have to keep time to draw <laughs> what was the band you played in oh I played in all sorts of ones that later went on to much better things but I uh, I played in a band at one stage called the Sheiks of R&B the Sheiks of R&B <laughs> yeah. did you guys record no what would that yeah, band become I, Pardon? What band, what band did that? All be? sorts. Like, another one went into the. Uh, another guy went into uh, the Shulman Brothers, which later went into uh, Gentle Giant. And so <laughs> they were all, all, all various bands, but none of them featured your dad. No. <laughs> no. By any, by any means. But I wonder. You must be on Discogs because you did do art for a couple of records, right? Yeah, but I did art. Not. Uh, I did art for Ron Geeson, who later did the Mike. Uh, uh, waters run. Uh, I don't think I've done any other. I've done. I, I no. I did a lot of posters. Not really. That. You didn't do any album design. I thought you told me you did a record design for something years ago, like a back cover design or something. No, with Ron Geeson. Ron Geeson. Yeah. So that you probably have a Discogs page. Oh, probably probably in there somewhere. Yeah, because well, it's credited. Yeah, there we go. Not the only Abraham with a Discogs page. Discogs page. No. Well, Ron Geeson was an amazing guy. I recommend anybody listening to. The body that he did with Roger Waters and from Floyd. Oh, is that the one where it's all sound Sounds effects? The body. body. Yeah. He did that record. That's Rob Geeson, Oh yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a crazy record. Oh yeah. That's probably like after Pipes of the at the Gates of Dawn, my favorite Pink Floyd. Yeah. Really. Well, that's outrageous. And Ron Geeson was just an incredible. He's still an incredible guy. Wow, that's awesome. He did a lot of stuff for Floyd. Yeah. Well, I guess they're like one of those bands that. You know, like whether it's John Lydon making the I Hate Pink Floyd shirt to rebel yeah. against him or countless bands being influenced by them. They're, yeah. they're kind of a zeitgeist for so much stuff oh, in, for sure. in England. Well, and Sid Barrett was, was such an icon of music, you know, a musician. Did he play when he was solo too? Did he play shows? Not that I ever saw. I mean, I bought Piper at the Gates of Dawn yeah. and thing as soon as it came out. And then Madcap Laughs yeah. and yeah. stuff. But he, I guess, did he not tour, I guess, when he was, I guess he was yeah. too far gone by that point. Yeah. Oh, Dragonfly, that was the other one by him. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, Dad, thank you so much. Thank you, Dames. Absolutely. Welcome, everyone, to the intermission between my uh, dad's episode and now my mom's episode. Um, they will be uh, coming back shortly. But before we get to them, we're going to have a very special guest join us on the main show, someone who is kind of the the pilot of the uh, the second show. That is Chris O'Toole. Chris, buddy, how are you doing? <laughs> Good. You're always very flattering with your intros. Uh, thank you. Does it feel different being on uh, Tope itself versus Footnotes? 
The legit, yeah. It's uh, it feels a little different. Yeah, it's a little more prestigious. <laughs> well, no, I think I think footnotes. That's for the that's for the hardcore. Yeah, that it, you're, I'm not begrudging anybody who prefers one or the other. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, uh, it, yeah, it's a different class, though. It's like I'm uh, I've been called up to the big leagues for, uh, for one <laughs> one game here. Well, no, we still have the Chris O'Toole turned into punk in the future that we're just going to keep teasing for now. Yeah, that'll be my brief stint, like half season, uh, you know, cameo on some team. (laughs) Well, buddy, I appreciate you coming on to this show today and joining me because we've been talking about doing this for a while now. And what better place to do it than episode 100. But you and I have been prompting listeners to send into footnotes their lists of top 10 episodes of Turned Out of Punk, and uh, we have decided to kind of go through our list of the top 10 episodes of Turned Out of Punk, and uh, just kind of come out with uh, some of our favorite uh, things that have happened so far on the show, much like we do on Footnotes, but just uh, on this show. Yes, indeed we have, and it, it was, I must say for myself, I don't know, you're very close to it, so perhaps you have uh, very standout experiences that you can draw from more. Maybe it's even more difficult for you than than me, but I found it very difficult to, to narrow down to ten. To be honest, I think like yeah, it's uh, you know it's definitely hard because I like I've loved every single one of these that I've gotten to do. Um, you know, maybe with like the no, I can't think of any exception where there's a point where I've just been like I really regret doing this. Like every single person I've interviewed, I've enjoyed the experience of interviewing them and, and getting to talk to them on this kind of level. Yeah, like I, immensely, like unbelievably. Um, but there are definitely things that have kind of jumped out to me. And there are things in this show, like the whole crux of the show and the whole thesis of the show, which will uh, be coming out in next week's episode, I think, especially is the idea of this network and the sort of unknowing network of people. They're all kind of connected by just kind of loving the same sort of music. And it's music that wasn't necessarily the cool music to ever like in school. You know, maybe for brief periods and brief pockets. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's perfectly stated. I think your show. I mean, I've said it on numerous footnote episodes, but this you have always kind of uh, held that um, that narrative that you you weren't even intentionally trying to force. But I think it's come out in a lot of episodes, including future ones, which you've sort of made a brief mention of to me at least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think uh, that's kind of what I based my list on was the ones that kind of blew me away as far as like connecting dots that I didn't know could be connected or, yeah. or, you know, uh, you know, once again, helping me prove this uh, sort of sub thesis that runs throughout the show. Yeah, for sure. So what uh, I'm curious how many of, of ours will overlap. Mm-hmm. If any, um, but yeah, I I found it very difficult. I'll say this to start. I had to narrow down to ten. I had another nine, mm-hmm. which I feel I could. Li- and I would even say, uh, thinking about it honestly, I would say even another eleven that I could slot in to any of the other spots to take to. It was like it was so, um, so tough. My my theory on it was to do it as diverse as possible in terms of kind of subject matter and the individuals. So it was like highlighting different areas of um, either geographical regions or just areas of like subject matter, which I, th- I felt were covered, uh, you know, more broadly on some episodes. So sort of give you a good wide swath. My idea is that if a listener has never listened to any of these mm-hmm. to pick, to pick my 10 and it will, it will fill their head with the 
uh, broad stroke of information where they will all automatically be able to walk into a record store and and start hitting all the hitters right away and know what's going on. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, I guess with that kind of intro, I'm very intrigued by your list now, Chris. Yeah. Um, so uh, should we start with number 10? Sure. Uh, number 10 on my list. And this was a difficult one because – I was trying to pick ones also that weren't too recent, mm -hmm. which I also found it difficult to do because your last run of uh, 10 or 11 episodes have been particularly very, very strong for me. So I tried not to grab any that were too recent, but my number 10 is a recent one, recent enough at least. Uh, episode 87, Arish Khan, mm -hmm. which uh, is, of course, King Khan from the Space Shits and, of course, King Khan in the Shrines. Uh, I like this episode for a lot of personal reasons too, but I thought the stories – I think he's a really entertaining interview. I thought you did a really good job on it, uh, particularly as well on your rapport is very good with him. So that was mine, and it covered that area that we frequently talked about, of course, both being lovers of the spaceships and things of that. Uh, but I like the stories, just like the chaotic stories of the spaceships intro and things of that nature. Yeah, no, I definitely – I love that episode, and it probably will come up again. <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, but for me, yeah, my number 10 was uh, Greg and Sade. I think they were – I don't know. Like I think you know, going into the interview, I didn't know how it would go because you know it's two people interviewing them at once and stuff like that. But they were so fun to talk to and I think offered uh, you know, like a – proof that this thing goes on and that it, it still goes on beyond them even, you know, and that there's like a new wave that will carry this on, you know? Yep. And, and I think this show tends to look back, you know, a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I like the idea that there are bands that are carrying this stuff on to the current day and people that are carrying this stuff on to the current day and not dead yet fast. And, and everything that they do is just so essential to Toronto. Yeah, totally. I just thought about something too. It's like, I don't think I, th there's only one person on my list that I think I genuinely know, uh, not super well, but all the rest aren't. So I found it difficult to pick people that I knew, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, not to say that I wouldn't, because those interviews, I agree, Greg and Chardes is, is a good interview. But, um, anyway, yeah. So interesting choice for 10 too. I, uh, I, that one did not make my list, I will say, but I did enjoy it as well. And I'm with you on the, Especially for the with the footnotes, and I do I do wish we could get to more new stuff uh, in a more accessible way. But I find because a lot of the stories are dated that we tend to get to the old stuff. So that's my only disclaimer there. Yeah, yeah, and I think we do get some the odd new thing, and there's always there's always part twos. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, okay, your number nine. Okay, my number nine. You know what's funny? Because I didn't really rank them in order, so I rank them in in a uh, running order of your show list. Yeah, like so they're not in a um, uh, which like a, like a one to ten. This is really yeah one to ten either. These are yeah, just like so, ten, and also like I could easily change these at any other given moment. Yeah, so I will go um, because it's the run again. Episode sixty six is the next one I jump to. But it's a huge one, and I'm pretty positive this is on your list. I would say this, if I'm being realistic, this would be – this was the episode for me of Let's your – Let's just go through your list, Chris, because I'm realizing now I'm going to have a lot of redundancies with you. And, okay. And, and so let's just go through your list. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm in no particular order, but I'll do it reverse running order. So uh, the first one was Arish Khan, like I said, episode 88. Yeah. 
we spoke about that. Next one on my list uh, was episode 66, which I'm quite positive is also on yours, uh, which is the none other than Robbie Brookside, yes. uh, the wrestler, uh, who is, I would even argue, <laughs> probably more of a revered punker for me now than a wrestler. But um, <laughs> uh, just that episode for me is the one maybe of the whole run that really jumps out as being – you know, not only did I know nothing about this person at all, but the fact of his history with punk and I don't know, I just found it amazing. That was a great interview and there's tons of info in it uh, for anybody that has not really uh, dipped their toe, especially into the British stuff whatsoever. I think it's a, covers a good, um, good broad spectrum to get into. So yeah, that was my uh, other one. Yeah, it's funny because I spent like the last weekend hanging out with former guests and uh, someone whose episode is definitely was on my list that we're no longer going to discuss. But, um, uh, you know, about MVP. And he said, again, like, this is the wrestler's wrestler. And, you know, it's it's like the punk's punk, too. Like, totally. Someone who did a pirate radio station, someone who's never lost the love of it at all. Someone that, you know, really only fucks with DIY punk. You know, you listen to that episode and some of the stuff that he kind of just dismisses is is punk by most people's opinion. But like his definition of punk is kind of this very, I don't know, like like admirable, awesomely DIY kind of take on it. And and just so cool. Like it's so cool that he follows it to this day and still gets into bands and still gets excited about stuff. Totally. Yeah, I I, that was probably my standout. There's been a few real big standouts that Mm -hmm. you've done, but that was. I w- when I think of episodes to recommend to people, especially that are already interested in punk and that I think will blow their mind, that's definitely the one I always go to um, as yeah. far as recommendations. Yeah, definitely. There's no, there was no point in the show that I've been well. You know, there's there's stuff coming up definitely that's blown me away. But like, certainly the level and the and the depth of his love. Like, if you listen to that episode, like I'm just like beside myself with excitement and glee <laughs> as he's talking about stuff like the Electric Dead and like just like it's just yeah. nuts. Yeah, and, agreed. Um, you know, it's like well, very Bob Mold esque. You know, like Bob Mold esque. You know, but like I would say he's almost like the inverse to Bob Mold in the sense that Bob Mold has always kind of like loved wrestling in a very real way, like beyond being in the business a little bit um, for a brief stint, you know, not not to diminish what he did. He was writing for WCW at an incredibly big time for that company, you know, the brief before the flare out type thing. But, uh, you know, but he has always maintained that love of wrestling while being involved in music. And, And Robbie Brookside is, you know, one of the most respected people in pro wrestling and has always been, in love with music in the same way. Totally. Um, yeah. Agreed. So anyway, yeah, great. I, I, I love that episode. And it's on your list too, I would imagine. Yeah. It's on my list too, but we don't need to talk. <laughs> let's not, I'm going to keep bringing up my fucking list, but I think it, it, for the sake of all of us, let's just focus on your list, Chris. Okay. And I'll just keep awkwardly oh. bringing up mine. No, it's all good. So the next in the running order. Okay. Again, to start off, my number 10 was Erish Khan. And number nine was, well, running order, was Robbie Brookside. So we've gone from a Canadian to a Brit. Uh, we're going back, or not back, sorry. We're going to an American next uh, at episode 59, Nico Case, mm-hmm. which is an episode I loved as well, um, particularly because I'm a fan of hers, but also because I think this exposes a whole other side of interview of her that I don't think I've ever heard. I'm not sure anyone will have ever heard. And I, I also think she has a deep sort of history with punk that I was really not aware of. 
Um, so that was a, a great exposure episode too. And it just covers Pacific Northwest, which is dear to me. So yeah, big fan of that episode. Yeah. And she's just like one of the coolest people yeah, ever. Totally. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think I, I agree with you that one, uh, I should have had on my list. And now that I think about it, it would be on my list. <laughs> um, I thought yeah. long and hard though. I, I honestly took me, I did it last night and it took me probably a good 45 minutes to try and narrow it down. And I really stressed over, uh, one in particular, uh, like one slot, whether or not. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, tr- I truly think though, uh, Nico is one of the most badass people in music and to find out that, yeah, like you said, that she, her roots run this deep in punk and going to shows in the Pacific Northwest before she moved to Canada is just so awesome. I think that also, is that the episode that has a lot of the fast packs in it? Like a lot of the fast packs talk or was it another one? We talk a fair bit about them in that episode. Yeah, it comes up, that's it's come up a lot. Like anytime yeah. anyone's from that area, of course, I'm going to try and bring it up. Yeah. Nate, I think cool. I bring it up on Nate's one a few times. Yeah. Either way, so that was my uh, what was that? Or sorry, ten, nine, eight. So that was my eighth pick. My Mm -hmm. seventh pick is for episode fifty. So similar in the run there, but it's uh, this one will probably maybe throw you for a loop. I don't think you would have thought I would have picked this, but this one impressed me too. Was Joey Cape from Lagwagon at episode fifty? And again, another American, but it was another different. Excuse me. You had Erish Khan, Robbie Brookside again. Two. Kind of very different interviews, Nico differently as well. And this is more Southern California. Well, I guess Northern California, but Southern West Coast. Um, yeah, and I just thought this interview was crazy. It exposed me to a whole other side of that kind of group or whatever, the lineage of that group that I was not aware of at all. Um, so I liked that interview a lot, even though it's brief. Yeah, like I had no idea. Like I knew there was RKL connections to that band, but like I had no idea his roots ran that deep. And yeah, that was someone who I've like subsequently seen a couple times on the road. And it's just, I'm so happy I got to meet him, you know, because he is really one of the nicest, sweetest people. And just, you know, that it I wouldn't have happened without this episode. It wouldn't have happened without Melanie Kay tell, nice. like, asking me to do it. So that's, you know, another guest who, you know, has helped out this podcast immensely through her day job, which is uh, PR for tons of the bands that have been on this podcast. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but that was one that she was like, Hey, do you want to do this? And I was like, ah, yeah, you know, but I was always, I kind of bought into this myth that he was probably going to be a dick and then met him. And he was just like one of the sweetest people. And yeah, we had a, a great conversation that went on way longer than the podcast, unfortunately reflected because there were bands playing and, and music happening and stuff. So, uh, you couldn't hear it, but, uh, we will have him back again because my God, there's a lot more to get into. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. But it's a good one. Again, if you're noticing my, my theme here, I've touched on four different aspects, which yeah. I don't think those interviews really overlap. Yeah. This next one I choose kind of overlaps a little with his, but much more broad because of the uh, the individual who I'm assuming is on your list. If not, someone dear to you, I'm aware. Um, if you don't mind me going to it next. No problem, uh, please. Is, uh, one episode, sorry, six on my list is Brian Walsby. Yeah. So there is subject matter overlap, but Brian is a beast of a, in my opinion, subcultural figure. Um, so I, I just like this episode because I think he's entertaining and has a lot of stories and a lot of knowledge in this episode as well for people that may not be aware of his sort of background or, or a lot of these bands that he was in or what have you. Uh, so yeah, that was my sixth 
so between him and Joey Cape, I definitely have Nardcore kind of covered. Uh, yeah, but it's, I think it's awesome that you do that too, because I think it reflects the fact that here's this scene that most people, you know, including a lot of fans of punk, will write off, including a lot of participants in some of these bands, will write off as being <laughs> kind of like second rate. Um, but I love, and I know you love, yeah, totally. hardcore stuff. But, but you know, here's the scene, and and just you know, there's just two of the people that have come out of that scene and gone on to have had massive impacts in music and you know, like underground culture, you know, broadly termed, uh, you know, for years to come in way more diverse kind of areas than nardcore. Yeah, you know, like Lag, Lagwagon was probably one of the biggest bands to come out of that sort of like skate punk. Yeah, totally. What we've deemed Epifat scene. Um, and and certainly on Fat Records, they were one of the biggest bands, I would imagine. And, you know, at the same time, like Brian Walsby, yeah, that episode, you've got that one, like, I don't know, it's it's like a Rosetta Stone for yep. understanding American pop culture and music. Ag- agreed, totally. For me, that's like the uh, the... Well, there's a there's a bunch of really great ones, but for me, that's a that's a similar one to the uh, Robbie Brooks side in the fact that where mm-hmm. you don't like the depth of what the person's speaking about in that episode is very, very crazy. I yeah, that one I really enjoyed, and he's very entertaining and a great visual artist to boot. Yeah, absolutely, and like you know, like you know, Narcor, you know, the the uh, Love and Rockets comes out of that. Like No Effects comes out of that. You know, there's just so much stuff that kind of like emerges from this scene. That you know is so dismissed, yep. so so dismissed by people. Totally. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Anyway, I I, I strongly uh, recommend that episode. That was definitely on my list. Cool. So my number five now mm-hmm. uh, is one I know you would think I would pick. I'm assuming, but again, really, really deep knowledge. And this is this episode I like particularly because it's a like for like episode. Rarely, you know, you would talk to people. Uh, or you interview people that uh, their knowledge base is deep, but they might not be collector heads like you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robbie, though, I would say is, but Robbie Brookside was or is. But uh, this person definitely is. Is, is very- because there was a funny thing. Someone hit me up, friend of the show, future guest. Um, uh, I won't reveal who this was and said, like, I think Robbie Brookside just bought something off me on Discogs. And I hit up Robbie. <laughs> Did you just buy this thing? He's like, yep. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so, Big Brother, the punk Big Brother's watching. <laughs> well, I think it's just like I think it just shows the network, you know, the network, Flattery, of, yeah. the no, network of friends. Sure. Um, but this next individual for me is kind of a contemporary like for like, and is sort of infamous in the same way that I believe you are, uh, which is Ben Blackwell of the mm-hmm. Dirt Bombs and Third Man Records. Uh, and I also think, again, now we're a lot of Americans for the next bit, but. Uh, again, I think covers a different part because up until this point, no one is really covering sort of uh, sort of near us too. But that whole Detroit scene, as well as even touching on the Nashville stuff, I believe a little bit yeah. uh, and their move down there. But yeah, great episode as well and uh, entertaining interview. Yeah, like I think there's a little like the thing it brushes up closest to is the spaceships, and I think you know that's just in the sense that we there's a sympathy connection. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of a garage rock, like late 90s or mid 90s, sorry, early 90s garage rock kind of scene connection. Uh, but you're right. Like, it's it's really that's a great like another episode that, you know, like going in, I kind of knew how deep he went. But 
My God, Chris, like I appreciate you flattering me by putting me on his level of infamy as far as collecting goes, but I am but a student to his master <laughs> of collecting. Either way. Uh, so if I'm going on my list, uh, that was number five. Mm-hmm. So we get Detroit covered there. So I want to jump again because for on my list thus far, there's a gigantic hole geographically. Um, and I'm noticing there kind of is still one on my list in, in general, which I'm a little bummed I didn't. Well, there's ignore. definitely some on this show, so don't yeah. worry. We're, we're no, no, but there's well, I don't. I get anyway. Um, there was one I could have covered that I haven't. Now I'm realizing geographically as far as America. But um, so my number four is a, a this episode for me blew me away too because I didn't know much about this individual and their history is insane and it's a hugely entertaining interview. If you have not listened to it, you must. It's episode 37, Michael Alago. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredible episode. Mm-hmm. And it is New York through and through. If you like New York, you should listen to this episode, especially relating to crossover and or New York hardcore of a certain era. Amazing. Anyway, that was my number four. Well, I just think he is like, yeah, one of the most brilliant human beings I've ever met in my life. Like, I love him deeply. He is so fun to hang out with. And, you know, it's funny because, like, he's an American hardcore. You he's know, in the, actually, he's in the movie? I don't know if he's in the movie because I haven't re Oh, he's in the book. He's in, definitely in the book. Oh, okay. I was going through and it was like, he's got some incredible quotes in that book. Oh, amazing. I need to look back on it. But, yeah, I didn't recognize his name when it came up originally listening to this. But, yeah, blew me away, this interview. Really, really enjoyed it. And, again, it has a good amount of info, but great stories, just, like, insanely great stories of a person who was, like, at a very uh, whatever, well, yeah. in, insane history, like, insane time in history for that city musically and, and things of that nature. And, well, and also, like, people that are saying that I've overstated about people having an impact on pop culture as a whole – this guy has definitely had an impact on pop culture as a whole. Yeah, for like, sure. His involvement in some of these bands is just incredible. And it's amazing. Like he, he is like everyone's, butt. like really he is someone that is beloved by the city of New York. And cool. so, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun episode. Yeah. So that was my number four. So I covered New York there. So now I'm going to jump, even though this one was slightly overlapped, but I was so entertained by not only this person in general, but also this interview uh, and it's back to Canada. And this was tough because I had to, I had to choose <laughs> between two prominent uh, Torontonians or Torontonian, I guess, that I would associate with Toronto. Uh, but I chose uh, episode 29, Nick Flanagan, even though it covers a lot of it in the Allison Baker episode, which I would have probably chosen, but it was a little too recent. So I went with the Nick one. It's also Nick's is just really funny, I thought, and your interview was great. Uh, and it covers sort of that Toronto era that uh isn't sort of covered in the other ones the irish common covers it a bit i think but it covers a bit more of the the damien centric toronto rather than the the, whatever the montreal sort of lineage or what have you i went with the other side of uh the tinker combo uh two-pack that we've had on the show so far with (laughs) allison baker on my list but like nick is one of the funniest people to talk to ever and like you know getting to sit down and do that podcast with him was hilarious and, and a ton of fun. Yeah. But yeah. So I think, you know, once again, they are a band that I think, it, you know, uh, I've stayed on this show. I don't know if you back me up on this, but probably the coolest band ever from Toronto. Yeah. Well, I, I, they're definitely a, up there for me. I don't know if I could say that, but I would say, you know, definitely for me, a top five, top three for sure. Yeah. But yeah, definitely 
way way one of the coolest bands from toronto yeah well you can say i I just for me i i like i like i definitely probably prefer a few others but vibe wise they were insane and way out of the time yeah vibe wise out of control definitely and uh yeah uh fantastic 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 band so that was my number three so that was contemporary (laughs) toronto and my number two i went with sort of old school toronto almost dare i say first wave uh with don pile Mm mm-hmm and another great interview, very thick with information as well for people that might want to uh, look into this stuff. Um, and, of course, Shadowy Men, uh, exceptional uh, mention as far as Toronto lineage. Um, but, yeah, that was my number two. Yeah, that's definitely – like I, you know what? I That is one of those episodes that I'm – I I can remember getting to do and I'm like, God, I wish I could do it again because there's so much more that I wanted to ask that I just didn't think of at the time. And so I'm working on, you know, doing something with Don and Dallas because they work together on so much stuff uh, yeah. in the future. But nice. That is down the road. Spoiler alert for the nice. future. And my number one, again, in no particular running order other than trying to go chronologically speaking. And this was very difficult because you had a few off the beginning of the show that I was very impressed with. Yeah. But I went with Back to America with uh, episode five and, of course, Gerard Cosloy of Matador Records and Conflict Zines. Yes, yep. Uh, because the stories are too insane and they're just – it covers areas of history that are very dear to my heart. So that was the one for me um, that I had to choose. And it was very difficult because Martin Mills is such an excellent episode too and that was a great number one. But uh, I had to go with Gerard Cosloy. So that was my number 10. And I'm realizing now I've negated <laughs> almost entirely Los Angeles in my list, which is uh, a bit disappointing to me in retrospect. It's hard to do out of the 10. It really is. Oh man, I, I yeah, like I, I, you know, like I had a hard time. Like I also, Scott Thompson is one of my f- uh, favorites. Getting to do that one, and I just had such an amazing time um, getting to speak to him and finding out about how deep he went with you know being in a punk and about totally. Yeah, that was my one of my yeah. That was one I wrestled over. Melanie Kay, and the one I wrestled over, which would have covered the LA one, was the Steve McDonald. Oh uh, yeah, which- that that was my. That's probably still my number one uh, because it's just one of those episodes that, you know, I just like it just blew me away so much. The stories. And then, of course, you know, famously, I fucked it up, had to record <laughs> it the next night have all night. The next night, re-recording it after the crazy band practice that we had with John Joseph. Go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear more about that. Uh, and then, of course, that made me fuck up the Lance Bangs episode the next day. Um, <laughs> which you didn't fuck up at all but well, anyway. well chris so i think we disagree on that um <laughs> but uh yeah i just the fact that it came off after having to do it a second time and was still just as you know exciting and fun and just as jaw dropping and yeah it's, it's, there's some some harrowing stuff in that episode too so uh check it out it's an, yes it's, it's one of the yeah it's probably you know right up there for me uh and craig ferguson too was also Great one too. I didn't choose that again because of the the recent nature of it, but yeah, that was a huge one. And then for me, uh, the one that is uh, always uh, talked about by a lot of people still, the Meredith Gray's one um, was yep. uh, a, a, a really cool one to get to do right off the bat. And she is, my gosh, she has become like a pop culture phenomena uh, unto herself. Totally. 
these days. You see that clip of her with uh, Chance the Rapper and Beyonce and stuff? Yeah, I, I didn't. I wasn't aware that. Uh, who does she work for? Is it MTV? Or MTV, like yeah. Yeah. Because I wasn't aware of that, like that she was on that. I saw that clip. And I was like, "What? Why is she interviewing?" And I, then I looked into it. I was like, "Oh, crazy!" But yeah, um, yeah, it's nuts. You've interviewed her twice, haven't you? Well, I had. Yeah, also on Noisy. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry. I, like I did a live thing in the record store, or not a live thing, uh, a video thing in a record store. Nice. In Grasshopper Records, the Great Grasshopper, run by the Great Grasshopper, check out Grasshopper Records. Um, it's a, it's a cool store. Uh, yeah, but there, there's been like a lot of stuff that I've been really stoked that I've been able to get to do. And a lot of people I've been really, you know, fortunate to have say, yes, they'll come on the show and hopefully there'll be a lot more. Oh, Chris Gethard too. That Chris Gethard one, just that Toby from H2O story. It's amazing. There's, there's like that uh, Steve McDonald episode six. That's got amazing stories. And that was difficult not to choose. You're like, you're right. Chris Gethard, which is episode Oh, I got to look this up now. But anyway, uh, 51, 51. Yeah. So for me, I I just want to disclaim not that I have any issues with my list, but my list is the footnotes list, if you will. There was a lot of heavy hitters that I could have chosen as far as like guests, which I think a lot more in the limelight. But I feel that if you take my list and digest it and get into it, you will become the ultimate nerd that will uh, (laughs) be able to take on. Nearly anybody, uh, in terms of music knowledge, that is. Uh, and uh, arguably, if you follow Robbie Brooks, I'd maybe be able to take on anybody for real. But um, And so the, yeah. what's the worst one? Jay Maskis, probably, right? I don't know. That's, I'm not, definitely, that's I, definitely the most awkward one. I enjoy them all. He doesn't like to be interviewed, so no, I he enjoy makes it really. He makes it incredibly difficult. Yeah, I don't know. I could just choose one of my friends and say it's the worst, but I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I enjoyed them all. Another one that I really enjoyed that I didn't choose was the Chris Murphy. Uh, yeah, oh my God, I totally forgot about that one. Yeah, that was so fun. Yeah, it covered the north, north, or not north, yeah, northeast, pardon me, Canada. But I felt that it didn't, um, it was more, I, I was worried that was a bit too Canada centric for a broad listener. That uh, although it covered a lot of American stuff, no, in it, yeah, there were some amazing. Like the stories also talks about capitalist annihilation. True, it's very or alienation. A lot of footnote material in there for sure. But um, and the other one I struggled with not choosing. There's a there's a lot of great ones, but Fifty Three Brian Venerable. It's got some great stories and completely um, not what you would expect as far as his lineage. Yeah, that's that one uh, else was ridiculous. Yeah, and the Chris Hanna, of course, is like thick with uh, crossover uh, material in there too, which is like super obscure, and it's a great interview. But yeah, there was there's a lot. Melanie Kay, great as well. And then your recent run had a number of them, probably three or four that I would have maybe taken. I would, so, yeah. I would add John Spencer on, but that you know what? I, he was on the list, and it was that was a painful one not to choose because that one covered. Uh, a, an area that really wasn't discussed on any of the ones I chose either. And I wanted to do it because it had a little bit of that weird DC-ness, but it had, uh, you know, sort of the, that weird New York, which we t- that kind of doesn't get talked about in any of the ones I chose either. So, um, yeah, it was in there, and I love them, but, uh, I, I, yeah, I didn't choose them. I, I love that you did that interview, though, and I think it's super important. But, yeah, it wasn't on mine. Well, Chris, I think uh, we could go on talking about um, – well, I could go on talking about myself all day. <laughs> but, uh, but we, once again, are encouraging everyone, please send them in because we're going to be doing a very special Turn Out of Punk 
footnotes, episode 100, celebration. And uh, so send in your picks if you are so inclined of your favorite episodes so far. And we're going to be talking about them on footnotes with some special guests. Yes. So, uh, and uh, that is it. Now on to part two, Turned Out of Punk with the person who hates punk the most in my life, my mom. <laughs> What do we want to talk about? We're going to talk about, uh, well, this is going to be a weird one because you're the first guest I think I've ever had on that uh, doesn't like punk. <laughs> I, um, it's not that I don't like punk. It's just not everybody's entitled to their own choice of music. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's I, not your choice. And it certainly is. No, it wouldn't be up there as the top ten. <laughs> no. Um, but I, you know, I appreciate the fact I loved going to see you in concert. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you definitely were one of the few people that have seen me in both You're in Trouble and Fucked Up. And weren't you in something else before You're in Trouble? No, You're in Trouble was the first. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're in Trouble was the first. I think, <clears throat> was there another band that, I don't think, I had another band briefly, um, but I don't think you saw it ever, because um, I think we only played two or three shows. Well, they was, were just like keg parties. and It was you know, nice when you just started, because then you were on early. But as you got more popular, you weren't getting on until like 1 o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't stay awake. Yeah, well, I think also those early shows were all ages shows. Then we started playing, you know. Yeah, they were all ages shows. shows yeah. or we started playing headlining all ages shows. So, yeah, it was a little bit later. No, your father and I did appreciate there was a bar. Mm -hmm, you definitely appreciate that. I was very... <laughs> Because you started going to those shows very early on. Uh, yeah, well, I guess like we're jumping way ahead because I kind of want to start this show. Well, I got to kind of start the same way I start most of them off, which is how did you, normally it's get into punk, but how did you first hear about punk? Do you remember the first time you ever heard about it? Not from me, but like even from dad or from just the media? Because it was in the oh, media, yeah, right? Oh, yeah, no, no, it was with... Um, Oh dear, who's the fellow that committed suicide? Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious, yeah. That was, you know, everyone heard about Sid Vicious. Yeah. So that's the first time I heard about punk. That was your first I time. I never heard what he sang, but I heard that's when I knew about punk yeah. music. Were you, I guess, like, were you seeing any sort of like, because dad had bring, had those records, you know, like this is before I was born. Um, so, he, you know, he must have been bringing it into the house. Was he playing that on the stereo for you at all? Like not when I was stuff? home. No. Not when I was home. Uh, I imagine he played it on the stereo when I was at work. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been a good time. Well, you were traveling a lot, right? I was traveling a lot. That was my job. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I was traveling a lot. So he had a lot of free time to listen to whatever he wanted. Yeah, but before you became a flight attendant, though, you had, you know, been involved in music. In the entertainment industry as yes. well, right? Yes. So I guess, like, you know, you, you know, not because, you know, certainly not saying that you're not into music because you're not into punk, because you definitely have always been into music. That was always something. Yes, well, I was a dancer, so the music, but what sticks in my heart, in my soul, that I love the most is the stuff that I dance to. Yeah. My, my music for my generation. 
which I think is the same with everyone. Mm -hmm. We expected you not to like, in fact, your father was very emphatic that he hoped you did not like his music, that you had your own music mm -hmm. that you would like, which is every generation has it. He was less understanding when I started to like some of that music. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I think that. But um, I think he was living in Australia at that point. So, yeah. what was yeah. your uh, like? So, when did you get into music? Like, what was the point? Do you remember like what was Actually, the first I artist that you? Were... Oh yeah, um, I remember my parents belonging to a record club where they send you free record, not free records. They send you a record every month or yeah. every couple of weeks. So, yeah, I had the Everly Brothers. Um, that was probably the first group I really listened to was okay. the Everly Brothers, but uh, my mother was crazy for Elvis when Elvis was on Ed Sullivan. She was screaming. Really, yeah. Nana? Yeah, Nana was screaming. Yeah. Do you remember that? Like, because yeah, you, you were. I do born, remember yeah. that because there wasn't very much furniture in the house, and a little, little black and white. I guess there was only two chairs because I was sitting on the floor. Okay. And she was sitting on the floor beside me. But yeah, when he first came on Ed Sullivan. So that's like, uh, I guess that that would probably be your first music memory then? Is that before yeah. the record even? Yeah. That would, well, that would right? be my first music memory. Yeah. 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 Um, so, from the Everly Brothers, where did you kind of go? Like, was Nana bringing, was she, she into Jen rock and, and roll? Dean. Um... No, she liked the music. She certainly knew how to twist. Yeah. Like, Chubby Checker was a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, she liked music. She liked to dance. Yeah. She liked to dance, so... And she always had the radio going. Mm-hmm. Like it was in our house. I always have the radio Yeah, there's always radio going. Yeah. Which there's, probably is now why I can't deal with quiet. <laughs> I can't deal with quiet either. I go to sleep to the radio. Yeah, I know. I can go to sleep with my own thoughts. Luckily, they're loud enough. Oh, Jesus, and maybe that's why I listen to the radio. I don't hear my own thoughts. <laughs> so, um, where'd you kind of go from that, that? How old were you when you got in the Everly Brothers? What was that? Oh, God, I would have been, I don't know, eight, nine. Okay. So, where did you go from there? Uh, well, 11. I guess you're like a little older when you start. 11, no, 11, 12, we were collecting Beatles records. Okay. All my girlfriends had, uh, you know, we listened to music all the time, but it was buying 45s. Yeah. Where were you uh, buying 45s? At the record stores. Okay. And they were solely record stores, as all they sold. Yeah, and this is in sort of, you were in suburban, in suburbia. Mon suburban suburbia. Montreal. Yeah, suburban Montreal. So yeah. would you go downtown, or were these record nope, stores? No, there would be a record store just in the local plaza, mm -hmm. and we would be there literally every Friday to see what was number one on the local radio station's hit list. Also, oh, be by the charts? Be, yes. I was going to say, well, how yes. did you figure out what you wanted to buy? Yes, and there were stations, Yeah. you know, that were not maybe totally geared to teenagers, but pretty well geared to teenagers. Yeah, it was the beginning of that sort of cult of youth. Yes, it was the beginning of this, you know, the 60s yeah. and the cult of youth, yeah. So, um... Were those like, do you remember when the Beatles came to North America? Yeah, I went to the airport to see them land. Yeah. I went, we rode on our bicycles. I don't know where we put our bicycles, but we, Montreal had a, like a pat, like a patio where you could go out and watch the planes and they opened that all up. And so it was just luck of the draw where you were standing. Yeah. We got there like six hours ahead of time. Yeah. To make sure we got a good space. So... 
I didn't see them as well. We, in fact, we changed places. If we'd stayed in the first place, we would have seen them really well. Anyways, I saw them land in Montreal. Okay. My father would not allow me to go to the show. And my mother was so angry with my dad that she let me go to the Stone Show because he wouldn't let me go see the Beatles. Yeah. He thought it would be a riot. So he, but he had, so he had to let me go to the next rock concert, and it was the Stones, the Rolling Stones. What year was that? Like, oh, that's the first time it would have been Montreal, right? Yeah, that. Listen, I must have been twelve. Okay, you went to see the Stones. Yeah. So where did they play? They played at the Forum. Okay. They all played at the Forum. Yeah. Yeah, and they took. Mick Jagger picked up a chair. One of the local, well, one of the DJs that we all listened to was emceeing, and I don't know what he came on stage for, and Mick Jagger threw a chair at him to get him off the stage. Okay. Oh, yeah, it was wild. Yeah. It was, well, as wild as you get when you're 12. <laughs> yeah. Is that your first concert? Yeah, that was my first concert. That's a pretty good concert to see. That's a pretty good yeah. choice period. And was, then, was Brian Jones still in the, he was still in the band at yeah, that point. Yeah, he must have been, yeah. And stuff. So, that wow, that's a pretty choice era to see the Rolling Stones. Yeah. So, yeah. what were the... Were they you? weren't my favorite group, by the way. No. It was just to annoy my father. They were, you know, I wasn't really into the Stones, but... So what were some of the other groups around that time that you were kind of getting into? Um, I guess like actually the, the Beach invasion. Boys. Right. The Beach Boys that we... When I started into high school, we met a whole new group of... Um, <coughs> excuse me. New new guys, and they were all into the Beach... The California sound, the Beach okay. Boys. That was the first time. I had heard the Beach Boys, but all this sort of happened between 11 and 13, because 14, I was on television, and I was, these people were coming to sing. Yeah. In fact, the Everly Brothers came to Like Young to perform. Well, I want to get to that, Mom. Don't worry. Don't We're going to get to that moment. Don't okay, worry. my big moment. My big moment. <laughs> I'm going to jump in. But were there other concerts you went to uh, before Like Young? Uh, just the Rolling Stones. Was, that was really the only show you went. Yeah, was. yeah. It was, you know, it was downtown. I lived out in the suburbs. So, yeah. I mean, someone had to drive you. And but were they like local dances with local yes, bands playing? Yes, there was local. That's true. But you, if you ask me the the name of them, I. It, but there is what uh, five count. No, I don't know those. The Haunted was one of them. Like they were in church basements. Yeah, I know. But this is the stuff, Mom, that I'm really into. The obscure ones. Oh, the obscure, the haunted, the Mash McCann. Um, there, oh, there was a very popular group, and it came. Two of the guys were from my high school, but I can't. I've suddenly lost the name. Okay. I would have researched it if I'd realized. Don't but. worry. Don't worry. That's what we have our other show. But they are for. recognizable. I just can't remember <coughs> the names. Okay, I may I'll try and find out. There were a lot of bands that came from kind of like the West Island. Yeah. You know the Doughboys. No, they were much later. Don't maybe oh, okay. But they're friends with uh, you know, I think some of their relatives are friends with Garland now. Oh really? Yeah. There's there was a lot of dances actually. There was a dance almost every weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them were in the church basement. And were there always bands playing or DJs or? Yeah, they were always live bands. That's awesome. Yeah, even in the high schools, we'd have, you know, if we'd have a sock hop or something, there'd be a live band. You probably saw a lot of cool stuff, I imagine, that one. Um, probably doesn't stand out because of the no, touring it doesn't, stuff. Not really. Not really. I The Beatles were the big ones. Yeah. They were the big ones. So, like, actually, were there any big local bands that people were into? 
Um, well, yeah, the, the dances were full. I'm trying to. It's, no, but it's I mean, like, so like big Montreal ago. bands. Like, what were the oh, big, big Montreal, Montreal bands um, in the '60s? Oh God, oh, Dame, you should have let me have time to research this because <laughs> there is. Um, I can't remember anybody's name. All of a sudden, very popular is the, the big stars in Montreal were actually the French groups. Yeah, they were literally. The you know they they had guards and yeah. yeah they were, but you can ask me Nanette, and Tony Roman, and Jacques Savai, um, yeah I don't think anyone would know these people yeah, but that's, except for my generation. You no, know, that's that's what honestly on this show that's people love this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, have you ever listened to one of the, these before? My, oh, Mike Nichols was, and I'm trying to remember the name of his group. But he actually played in um, what was that rock rock musical they did? Nashville. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He was playing a musician in Nashville. He played New York Hair. He was one of the leads in Hair in New York. And he had a band. Yeah, and he had a band. And you think I could remember the name of it? So where did you, uh, so I guess we get to this point where you know you hear about this audition on the radio, right? Yes. When you're like fourteen. My mother heard it, but yes, okay. she heard it, and she said, "And she said, I think you should call." And they had an open audition at the local television station, so we went down there, and there was all kinds like models and professional dancers, and and it was just a, a every Saturday sort of teenage show. They'd have an audience that would come and dance, and we would. We were couples. There were three couples, and we were on, like, not platforms or anything, but, like, a little risen stage mm -hmm. each of us had. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, so I walked out and said, no, I didn't get that. I'm sure I didn't get that, that, you know, all these people. And anyways, they called to, to tell me to come back for a second audition, but my sister answered the phone, and she forgot to tell me <coughs> for, like, a week. I almost missed it. Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, CFCF called. They want you to come back for another audition. <laughs> oh. So this is one of the Montreal stations, though, right? Yeah, like yes. yeah. it was CTV, mm -hmm. but it was the Montreal station. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and I guess, like, the closest thing to the show would be, like, American Bandstand, yep. but with more of a regular cast of dancers. I think, yes, no, American Bandstand had a cast. Did they have a cast, I too? used to watch um, Hullabaloo, which would get very grainy. Yeah. Very grainy. We only got four channels, and five channels, but it was very, it was out of the States. It was very grainy. Great show. But that's how I learned to dance, and it was more similar to that because they had the same dancers on week after okay. week. So that's what they modeled it on. Yeah, okay. I think so. I think so. And anyone... Like Tom Jones, Engelbert Humperdinck, um, all the Motown artists that came through Montreal would come to like Young. Yeah. They would not. Uh, Tom Jones performed, Stevie Wonder, Peaches and Herb, uh, Chubby Checker. They all came. Yeah. They all came. What were they like, like at that point? Because this is like the birth of the, the rock star, right? This is the um, birth of the pop star. Yeah, they were actually they were all really very nice, very nice. Um, I'm trying to think who was rude. There was only like one. Stevie Wonder was very young. Yeah. 
and he, he would have been a little kid. Well, yeah, little he, Stevie Wonder. Little Stevie Wonder. I guess. Well, I was only fourteen. Yeah. I think he was fifteen. I think one of the girls, the other girl, was twenty-one, but all the guys were sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Okay. So, um, yeah. I forgot what I was saying. You're saying little, little Stevie Wonder was... Uh, oh, Stevie Wonder. So we were introduced. He was sort of sitting where the audience sat, because there was yeah. an audience, too. And he was sitting there, and he said... We were introduced to him, and he said, Come a little closer. I'm blind. He said, I can only see you in Braille. So in other words, he was a punky little kid that one, you know... He was a star. Yeah, he was. He was yeah. might have been very young, but he was a star. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think he's out of anyone, he's the the one that would probably have. Well, I guess like Tom Jones had a, an epically long career, but yeah, you know Stevie yeah. Wonder certainly has had a. Oh yeah, no, it was it was very exciting meeting him. I mean, all that music. Benny King was on. Um, yeah, big names. Were any band, rock bands on, or is it all mainly like? singers and more yeah it was more the motown uh yeah it was mostly singers i can't remember any of the groups that came on mm -hmm. it was mostly just solo artists mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i guess was was rock kind of on the wane in the mainstream at that point for a little bit well i guess there was a you know rock going on like the haunted played um what would have been the beginnings of heavy metal you know, yeah, like hard, well, like beginnings of hard rock. The begin, oh, yeah. very beginnings of hard yeah, rock. Yeah, and um, so yeah, there were bands that were there. I just, I didn't follow them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my type of music. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so, I guess you stayed involved in music. Like you, we went into do modeling and other acting stuff after Like Young. How long did Like Young go on? Oh, Like Young went on for, oh, it must have been on twelve, fifteen years. I really? Was, yeah. Oh, it started early. There was... It was on before you were on it? Three different women hosts. And Jim McKenna, the guy, was the only guy that was still... Okay. Yeah. No, I was on it from 14 to 18. Okay. Four years. No, maybe not 20 years, but certainly was on 12 years. I think it speaks to a lot of the sexism in the industry that there was the one male host and they swapped out three different women hosts yeah. to be beside them yeah. at different points. But. Yeah. They kind of got younger, actually. Yeah. Um, well, he's getting older, so they have to, yeah. <laughs> they got to keep people watching somehow. Yeah. Actually, when uh, when I danced, then I went on to dance on tele French television shows. Similar idea. Mm -hmm. But the difference in French, you were a star. Mm -hmm. Like, we'd, we'd have security guards that would walk us to our cars. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because I think... You know, for anyone outside of Quebec to appreciate the size and the magnitude of yeah of French and it was only, French culture exactly exactly like, and it was Montreal it's Montreal culture Celine, Celine Dion was on our show oh you you met her when she was a kid or yeah something? yeah yeah oh yeah because she started super young too yeah. right yeah I don't know how old she would have been maybe twelve fourteen I think she did Star Search at some point no. Later on? I don't remember Star Search. Or no, she, maybe I'm totally mistaken. But she certainly was a star in French. Oh, yeah. And she, she, her manager was the fellow that she married. Mm -hmm. so yep. He was, <laughs> yeah, he was there from right at the beginning. Yep. Yeah, very, the very beginning. Yep, that's a whole other can of worms. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get into that. No, let's not get into that. No, I don't want risque. Uh, 
<laughs> so, uh, so you kind of, I guess, stay into stay being involved in music in some capacity, like going to concerts and stuff. Like, were you going to concerts? No, no? going no. to dances. Or I first date with your father. We went to see the animals. Wow, that's a cool yeah. show. And he, we also went. He took me to see David Bowie, and that was when David Bowie was doing the astronaut mm -hmm. Ziggy. Ziggy Stardust. Ziggy Stardust. That's right. So we did see we did see the animals, and I did see uh, David Bowie, and I think we went to see George Harrison. Solo. Yeah, when all yeah, things went yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah, with it? Ravi Shankar. Okay. Yeah, was on it. Okay. Yeah. So were you into the animals at all, or no, not at all. <laughs> what about David Bowie? David Bowie, I enjoyed. Okay. Yeah, it was a fabulous show. Yeah. I mean, he had. The animals? No, not so much. And every one of your father's friends was so English, I couldn't understand what they were saying. Yeah. With their accents. And he hated, he laughed at me because I'd been on a flight to Paris and I'd bought a leather hat at the market in Paris. And he laughed and laughed and laughed and made fun of me through the whole concert. I don't know why I married him. <laughs> well. He was mean. He was mean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess maybe. Well, I w Tristan and I wouldn't have been here, but you know, maybe you should have gone with that first intuition. <laughs> That's true. I could know. I, you and Tristan were my gift, and then my three fabulous grandsons, which I wouldn't have. So yeah, that's yeah, true. I'm that's not, true. It no. would be a very different world. Yes. Um, yes. For for us, I mean, not for the, like the whole world, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> but for us, it would be very different. So, uh, at what point? So I'm born. You're born. Dad, I guess, well, actually, was, do you remember in Dad? Because he went to the Odd Punk show and stuff, and the guy who painted our house sang in a punk band. And you never went to any of these punk shows or anything? No. Do you remember, like, him going? Would you? What was your, like, reaction when he decided to start getting into the stuff? Do you remember that? I don't remember him heavily into punk. Maybe he went to them when I was at work. Yeah, he said he went to the Odd show here and there. Okay, well, he did, he did go to see his friends sing. Yeah. But I didn't think they were in punk. But I never saw them sing. So. Yeah, he painted our house. He painted our house. He was like the guy who painted the house. The inside. Yeah, like before I was born, I guess, because it would have been like in the late seventies. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, okay. And then he played in this band, and Dad went to their record release party. Dad doesn't have a lot of memories of it. I think it was a pretty good time then that night. He went to parties without me. <laughs> but I have this. Uh, I have that record here. Oh, do you? Yeah, and it's got like a place thing from the Elma Combo, like a, a seat marker or table oh, yeah? marker on it and stuff. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I guess fast forward, Tristan and I show up. Me and yes, my and brother. the first show I remember was down at the um, Opera House. No, no, no. Before oh. before the band even formed. Oh. Uh, like, no, like, this isn't be. That was the first show you went to because Glenn dragged me down oh. there. To, ch to talk to the manager because he didn't believe that they really were going yeah. to have a show in a bar and, so we should, and all ages. Let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, we got to introduce the characters. Oh, the characters we got to gotta bring everyone up to speed. Oh, so, uh, ultimately, uh, the leather hat. Oh, yes, uh, the leather omen hat guy. Proved to be true. Yes, and, yes, uh, yes. So, we, we went our own you, ways. You went your separate ways. We went our separate Dad ways. Dad moved to England. Yes. At this point. And, and then Australia. And then Australia. Yeah. And then uh, I... Um, I... I guess you married... You met a, a pilot. A pilot. 
Yes. Glenn. Mistake number three. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we left out the first husband, but he doesn't matter oh, at all. Well, he owned a club on Crescent Street, which was the, the hottest street. Yeah. But, and he did have, a, he did, he had three-piece, not a band, but a three-piece group in the, in the, in his club. What kind of music was it? Um, sort of all the top hits that they, you know, they do covers. There's like a cover band? Yeah. Well, yeah. we don't need to talk with them, Mom. He's, no, okay. he's irrelevant to this story okay. and to our no, lives. it's totally relevant. Now we can move on to, uh, though, uh, yeah, Glenn. Yes, The Glenn, pilot. The pilot. Um, never had children. Never yeah. been married. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he showed up and he had a whole... Uh, also, a whole set of rules. A whole set of rules. Yeah. You know? um, and yeah. things changed in our house pretty quick. Yeah. And they did. Fell in her Anyways, he was, yeah, doubting Thomas. He didn't believe anybody. Yeah, Tristan and I had gotten into punk with Simon Ennis. Like, Simon Ennis was into it. And oh, Tristan really? and I were like, well, I remember I got busted for shoulder tapping. Yes. You know. You were only 12. I would have been 12. Yes. When you get someone older, they need to buy beer for you. Yes. And uh, we got, I got taken home. Uh, they please. No, no, actually, no. I got taken by to back to my friend's house, and I called you, and you picked me up. And I remember you, we were just I got phone by the police. No, but this is later on, because oh, okay. before that happens, Mom, you picked me up from Lawrence's house. I'm sitting in the car with you, and you're just like, I'm so glad you didn't fall into trouble, because my friends have been expelled from school for Oh, right. Drugs. Yeah. And you gave me this whole thing about how proud you were that I didn't do drugs like my friends. And, uh, and I, you know, knowing that. And then the police called. And then I, you know, that night the police did call. You didn't even like beer. No. (laughs) No. I know. I just had, I needed, uh, yeah, like, you know, to be honest with you, when they said later on. You were the only. Let's go get acid after the cop took our beer away. Um, they were like, let's go get acid. I was way more excited about that because I had already become a fan of that one. Oh my God. How old were you when you started? Wait a minute, that, I think I was 13. I don't think I was 12. Or maybe you were 13. I think I was 13 because I think I got then... You weren't in grade 9, though. If you're only 13, you're in grade 8. Yeah, I wasn't. Well, it was the summer of grade 8. Summer of grade 8, okay. And you, uh, you, after the cop called that night, I remember being downstairs, What you went up to sleep, into bed. I picked up the phone at the same time as you picked up, and I remember hearing him saying, this is Officer Blah Blah Blah. <laughs> I hung up the phone. I was like, "Oh fuck! Oh fuck!" And you were then, the only. He said, "Told me you were the only one that gave your real phone number." I was a sucker. He said you were very polite. Well, also that's when I learned a, a very important lesson: never trust a cop, because he told me he wasn't going to call my parents. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, he lied. Yeah. Fuck. Of course he did. Yeah, he did lie um, about that. Uh, so, yeah, so he did call my. They could have dragged y'all down to the station and given you a really. On what charge? That age, you would have gotten a good scare. I'll tell you one thing. It's illegal to buy liquor under age. Yeah, of course it is, but like, come on. You only got caught because they were staking out the guy that was do- that was buying it for the kids. I know. That I not know. because you guys looked. We we were. They we, were undercover. And... I mom, I know. I was there. Oh, I remember that's this right. whole horrible incident <laughs> with the police, and then I remember actually uh, the the stepfather. Being the the calm one at this point, but you were definitely very angry. Yeah. Beside yourself, angry. I was pretty angry when I heard you were into drugs too. That was a little later that summer. Yeah. Um. That was a really good summer. 
Well, that was because my brother snitched on me to you. Yes. But um, we don't have to get into that story either. Okay. But we could. We, I don't care. Skip ahead. <laughs> I don't care. But you no. Know, but that summer is also the summer that I went to Ryerson Sports Camp and met a kid named Nick, who wrote graffiti, smoked weed, and also loved the band Sonic Youth and skateboarding. Please tell me that was the summer that you were doing counselor and training. That was. And not the summer where they told me not to bring you back. No, that was when I was like an eight-year-old while they told me not, not to bring you back. When they asked to speak to me, I thought they were going to tell me how wonderful you were. Yeah. I was shocked. Yeah, no. No, but anyway, I did, one of the good things that did happen when I was in the counselor and training program that summer that I oh, got, was meeting this guy? got busted and all this stuff was me and this guy because he told me to buy a movie called 1991, The Year Punk Broke. And that's where I heard about Sonic Youth. And that's when I, you know, reconnected with Simon Ennis, who was also kind of getting into all the same sort of music and already was into a lot of this music at yeah. that time. Yeah. And uh, that's when I started getting really into this stuff and started going to shows, or started wanting to go to shows. And we heard about one show, and it was Die Cheerleader opening for uh, a band called Filter. We didn't really care about Filter. We didn't care at all about Filter, but Die Cheerleader, we wanted to see because Henry Rollins from Black Flag and the Rollins Band produced their record. Oh, okay. And they were like a much buzzed about in our limited media world at the time okay. band. Uh, and so, yeah, we asked you guys if we could go see them. I think the immediate uh, answer was no. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, bear in mind, you know. How old was Tristan? Well, that was the problem. He was eight. Yeah, you always have a... God. No, he would have been uh, ten. Ten. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he... Uh, yeah, that was the problem. You had a brother who always had to tag along. I know. He wanted to be into everything you yeah. were into. So, we did, though, get permission eventually. Yes, you did. To After go. we went down and interviewed the manager who thought we were crazy. Athena? Uh, and yep, she's still there. She's also, is she still there? Yeah, yeah, she still runs it. God. I've now played that stage many a time, Mom. I know. Many, many a time. Um, <laughs> in various, various bands. <laughs> so, yeah, so you guys go down there, interview yeah. them. Yeah. And that show... And they assured us that they put a big X, a big marquee X, the indelible on your hands. And so they'd know. But, of course, I'm sure that didn't stop other people from buying underage kids drinks yeah like maybe that happened i don't know i never that was never a thing for me no ever ever no you had gone straight edge by no but not even even when i was not straight edge it was just never a thing like wanting to buy a drink at a a show it's yeah like you could get thrown out yeah you'd like it cost like 21 dollars to get into this concert you know i'd only get thrown out <laughs> um so but yeah like i'm sure it did happen but like i think Probably what was much more prevalent was like doing drugs Actually, I beforehand. I, oh, okay. You know, but I was I never. I didn't think that. I was wasn't that wasn't a worry. Doesn't a worry with the pilot. No, anyway. not and especially not with your ten year old brother around. Yeah, you know? yeah, because he squealed. No, he's a snitch. He's a we snitch. Established that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. And another interview. <laughs> no, we established in this interview when he snitched on me for doing drugs. You, you already said. Uh, Doing acid. Oh, he did. Yeah, I remember being in the car. It was on your birthday. Yeah. Anyway, no one wants it. This is really, this is definitely no, this the is dirty dead. family, dirty line. Yeah, no, cut this out. We're <laughs> no, this is staying in, Mom. 100% yeah. this is staying in. 
so where did um, so yeah so I meet this kid I want to go to these shows but the next show there was some resistance to the circle jerks was that the one you brought home the lead singer? No, no, that's no. The, we'll get to that one. That's later okay. on. The, all this is at the opera house because we live so close to that venue. Yeah, that's true. That was like just down the street. Yeah, it was like it was you know I could take a streetcar there. Yeah. and be home in fifteen yeah. minutes. Yeah, you know, um, but no, this was the one I wanted to go and see the Circle Jerks, who were doing a big reunion, and this is when Be- when Glenn famously uttered the line to Tristan and I, "I don't want you to go see some come in your face band." Is that what he said? Yes. You were there. Oh. <laughs> Where did he get that one from? Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't... The circle jerks, and that's what he came away with. Yeah. Well, the cir- a circle jerk, Mom, is a sexual... Oh, I see, I'm stupid. I <laughs> no, didn't no, know that. Not. And that's why he wouldn't let us go and see it. He was so furious. Um, and we fought tooth and nail. I guess we did leave out us getting refused to be allowed to go and see Guns N' Roses and Metallica. So who got to see ACDC? I saw ACDC. Okay, so he wasn't Glenn, all no, bad. No, he was, no, and I'm not saying, he's like, he's like you know, I'm a, I would never say he was all bad. He was definitely was strict, but uh, he did bring me to see ACDC. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're not going to get into Tommy, it in this podcast. Took Tristan to see Tommy. Yeah, we're not going to get into this podcast, but, you know, the, the, <laughs> the marriage did end pretty shittily. Yes, it and was, it was, you yeah. know, if there's, you know, fault to be blame, to be laid, I'm not going to lay it on my mom. And that's not just bias. No. no but at the same no. time, you know, he definitely let, like, you know, took me to see ACDC. Yeah. Which was super cool. But we could not go and see Guns N' Roses and Metallica. Is that because you weren't cleaning your capster's cage properly? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I hope so. I hope that's why. But no, I think it was because it was like, you know, he thought it was going to be too violent. Oh, no, it was because Guns N' Roses had just put out, I think the Spaghetti Incident had just come out, and they covered Charles Manson on it. Oh, okay. And this is one of your hardline stances. Yeah. You will never own the Spaghetti Incident. It will never be brought into this house. Oh, did you buy it anyways? Never did. Oh, good. No. I now legitimately own Charles Manson records, but... Oh, God. (laughs) I didn't buy them off them, so don't worry, the royalties aren't going to them. Oh, good. And also, the royalties from that Guns N' Roses record weren't going to him either because of Son on Sam was. Oh, but maybe that doesn't count as benefiting off your crime. I should look into that. Yeah, see if you made money off of it. Maybe a weird thing to find out. Um, but, yeah, no, so back to the Circle Jerks. We yes. were eventually allowed to go to the Circle Jerks show. Mm-hmm. They have played a huge role in my life ever since. It's amazing, like, how much of this stuff, like, I'm so glad that I fought so hard for it because it's so integral to my life now like a lot of this stuff like you know circle jerks for instance that's where i first saw mike halichuk oh really yeah i saw mike halichuk and and his friend andy getting dropped off by their parents in a car (laughs) and we were like what losers their parents are driving to a show and he looked at uh, tristan and myself and i think simon s and josh kirschenblatt yeah and we're all wearing like cut up uh, dress uh, shirts and yes, ties. Yes. And he was like, "What fucking losers?" <laughs> wearing shirts and ties to. I have a picture show. of you and Tristan in the outfit. Our punk outfits. Yep. That's the punk shirt, out. mom. Right there, that white shirt. See? Yep. Out? That's signed by every single band I saw that year. Yep. 
getting a little yellow. Well, I'm not wearing it still. Oh, good. <laughs> it's yellow from back then. I have a picture then. of, of your, the two outfits that you guys wore to your concerts. Yeah. And then I, uh, I started going to shows pretty much fairly regularly after that. Like, it was something anytime I was allowed to go on weekends, anytime I could... <laughs> Sneak away. Or, yeah, or trick you into allowing me to go on a weeknight, you know. I remember the one night getting locked in Bathurst Station. Oh, I, right. Remember that? Yeah. I went to go see that band Blount play with Ignite, and Ignite didn't play. Uh, then I got locked in the subway station. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but then I was, you know, a straight-edge kid. But mm-hmm. that all kind of came about because of one, on this podcast, very infamous night. And that came about because of uh, the AFI riot night, which is the night that AFI played with Good Riddance and Lifetime and, that's right, Mom Weston and yes. Trigger Happy. No, I don't know. You don't, you don't remember the bands that played no. on the bill. No. But during the course of AFI set, things went crazy with security guards and they started beating up kids. Uh, they were in, uh, told... Uh, by the lead singer of AFI that they should watch themselves. They hit a kid again. A security guard struck a kid. He said, get that security guard. Everyone, you know, got involved. Yeah. More security guards got involved. More kids got involved. God. Security guards quit. Went looking for the lead singer of AFI. Found him upstairs, but he managed to get out of the situation. Uh, Ed Fox, uh, who was a host on a radio show Tristan and I were involved with and friends of at the yes. time came downstairs and told me what had happened with the lead singer of AFI and uh, would I be there to help them load their gear out because they needed to load their gear out quickly and he had to find somewhere to hide and I said light bulb goes off above my head come to my house I live pretty close by you can come hide out at my house <sighs> so mom you did phone and ask permission. Well, no, that's actually after we're, we're already a good few blocks from the club. Oh. By that point. But we all get our, our merry band together and begin the, uh, I guess it was like about a 35-minute, 45-minute walk from Queen Street all the way up to where we lived. Yeah, maybe 30 minutes. 30 minutes, yeah. you know, but it was a quest. Especially if you're if you're a little nervous, it could be faster than that if you're running. <laughs> no, because I, we, took a, we took a very good convoluted path oh did you yeah, yeah no there's no way no someone would be able to follow us Tristan and I knew ducking into alleys you Gosh. know uh you know so we get we get Davey up to our house and they at some point I did call you and do you remember that conversation at yes all? I do don't bring violence into my house Damien <laughs> I'm gonna have to bring but him mom, home mom but mom but mom <laughs> don't bring violence into this house that went well, in one ear and out the other. Well, I decided to opt for the safety yes, of, of my new friend. Your new friend. Who was being a total chased. stranger. Well, I'd seen his band play twice by this point. Oh, well, then. I'd seen him at that friend. show, and I'd seen them open for Rancid earlier that year. So, uh, yeah, we were pretty close. But he was telling me about Straight Edge also on the way up. He's like, you know, we're talking about stuff like that. And it was a big night for me. Um, we eventually get home. We. I was asleep. Yeah. You're lucky that that... No, you weren't actually asleep. No, I came upstairs to tell you we were home. Oh, right. Yes, you did. And you told me you're not allowed to be a punk rocker anymore. Okay. (laughs) See how much you listen to me. You wait. You wait till your kids get to be that age and see how much they listen to you. I know. They're not going to listen to me at all. Nope. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I'm still friends with Davey to this day. He's been on the podcast twice. Okay. You know? Like, very well, close I might have overreacted, show. but, um, yeah, I didn't want you to bring violence into the house. You're no. You guys did what you wanted anyways. I don't know why you bothered to call me. Well, I... I, I it's such a big house that you could sneak them in. I, I thought maybe you'd volunteer to hop in the car and drive down and pick us all up. Oh, God. <laughs> maybe, like, you know, you guys are maybe being chased by this gang of, you know, angry security guards. Oh, God. That's what I was afraid of. You know, but that was, you know, not what happened, luckily. No one was... No. No one, no was, one was hurt that night, and, no. you know, Davey became a friend for life. And so it all worked out. Um, I guess, you know, I we've been talking for quite some time, Mom. But I have to talk to you a bit about when uh, Fucked Up formed. And uh, what was, uh, or I guess, me playing in bands, right? Yeah. Because You're in Trouble was before Fucked Up. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you saw You're in Trouble a few times. Yeah. Which, <laughs> thankfully... With all my girlfriends, they were... Big supporters. Yeah. Big supporters of Fucked Up. Well, that was at a time when to play a show, we were like, it was before we realized that you could put on your own shows or, yeah, you know, so we had to sell like a Old dozen t- tickets. Tickets. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> no, all my girlfriends bought one. I was no. smart enough to make a band with like uh, some of the most popular people in school, though. Yeah. That was a good idea. Yeah, because I sure, sure as hell couldn't have pulled together enough ticket sales every time. Uh-huh, that's true. You had to sell your own tickets. Yeah, to sell your own tickets. Yeah. And so, yeah, so uh, not not any good bands early on. You, what, you singing in them? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It was it was a music that I didn't really understand. I don't even understand what you're in trouble was. I'm not sure. I wasn't sure. I don't think anyone in the band understood. Although you did a cover of House of the Rising Sun. Yeah, with the animals. It brings with, back the animals. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that you and Dad had been to that for your first con- your first date. Yep, first date. I had date. no idea. Or we would, there's no way we would Actually, he had asked my girlfriend, and she said no. Really? Yeah. She said, take Cheryl instead. <sighs> yeah, I know. I know. All these, all these signs. Yeah, all these signs <laughs> pointing. <laughs> I'm no. just wishing myself into non-existence. No, uh, he was much more understanding about your taste in music than I was. He was until I got into straight edge. Until I was straight edge. Yeah, and then he didn't understand that. Not at all. At all. No. Yeah, he it couldn't. Was. He couldn't figure that out. No. You were kind of down with that, though. I guess. You know, I don't you remember being you being straight edge. I remember you. Be, you I remember you. Uh, remember that time I went to that party and I decided to X up huge, and you helped me put on the X's. Oh my God. You always had X's on your hands for a while. Yeah, for like a good... You'd X up every day before you go to school. I'd X up a lot. It was a, uh... I don't know, I think, I think there's like far more negative things you can find yourself involved in than being straight edge as... Oh, absolutely. You know, and it certainly is a... It introduced me to like some of my closest friends and mm-hmm. it was a very positive force. But you were... You supported it. Dad, not so much. I don't... I don't... It's not that he didn't support it, he just didn't understand yeah, anybody didn't understand. doing it. No, I think on this podcast, when I brought it up again, he still doesn't really understand He doesn't it. really understand no. it. No, I don't think he likes, uh, you know, for a guy in advertising, he claims he's not like a You made a big impression on your, on your uh, little male cousins. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. I actually, and it's, it's 
you know, like all well, all my cousins, you know, we, I can live yeah. at Kelsey too. Like all yeah. my all my cousins are, you know, they're all grew up into like awesome people, and to have them now come up to me and be like, yeah, we like yeah. looked up to you, and it's like that's crazy. Yeah, they did. You know, they and, like did. Garland being in like an amazing band, like playing and yeah. having such like a, you know, he's not playing in No Joy right now, but like you know, they his run in that band is just like they put out some incredible music. I know, I never got to see him. I felt so bad. He's a great drummer. He's going to he? be doing more music stuff. Yeah, I'm sure he will. And I'm so, sure he will. Yeah, they were, uh, you know, it was always like, you know, and they were also, you know, I remember dragging Garland to see a concert when he was like eight. What concert did you take him to? No reason when they played Basement of Who's Emma. Oh, right. And you took him, he was eight. Did we take Garland and Matt or just Garland that one? I don't know. And then he must have been like nine or ten, and I brought him to see uh, Born at Icons play Kites. Oh, he loved that stuff. Yeah, he well, he was like, he got into, you know, and he's still into like a lot more experimental stuff that I'm into too. Oh, good. You know, and got into like a lot of ska punk too. No, he looked <laughs> up to you. <laughs> they all, they were like, you know, it was, it was, we had a, a close knit little family yeah. unit. Yeah. Small family, but close. Yeah, very close. Yeah. But, so, I guess, you know, there was a period you stopped going to see my bands. Well, because you were on at 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I couldn't stay awake that long. But, you know, but, now, but then with Fucked Up, like, you know, I don't think you ever liked the name in the beginning. I have to admit, I didn't, I, I would have rather you chosen a different <laughs> name. I think I suggested that in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. <coughs> <coughs> But I was, I liked your albums. I I um, was very proud of you guys when you won the Polaris, and you made it work. I didn't. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. I thought with the name, I was surprised. But you flew. You guys flew. Well, no, and I think that's the thing is you know, and I know a lot of people in music whose parents weren't supportive of what they did, and not that this was ever my dream. It was more just like a fantasy. That became, yeah. you know, like just like something so out of the realm of possibility, it wasn't even. I remember your brother telling me that you were living his and your father's dream. <laughs> you had their dream job. <laughs> they both had to work for a living, and you didn't. They, uh, no, you you were their dream job. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't think either one of them could do a uh, one-handed cartwheel into a land on your back and hurt your. But, oh like God, I no! Or smash a beer bottle on the top of their head. No, no, I don't no. think they have the flair for the dramatic in the no, same way they that don't. I do. You inherited that from me. I think I probably inherited yes. from you and Nana. Yes. Oh, definitely. You know, screaming for Elvis. Screaming for Elvis. I remember doing it, jumping up and down. <laughs> she was very funny. Well, she was only twenty-one when she had me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she was a kid. I would have been maybe. Three. I don't think Cindy was born, so maybe I was three. And she, so she was what, 20, 23, 24? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, she was a kid. Yeah, she was a kid. She was a kid. She was always sort of a kid, anyway. Yeah, that's true. She was always a little bit of a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Mom, well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for asking me. This has been a lot of fun. 
And uh, I you hope know, I haven't embarrassed we, you. No, not at all. We didn't air any dirty laundry. No, no, no. I think everyone was worried. Tristan and, and Dad both were worried. A little <laughs> worried what we get into. Yeah, you and me were going to come on and flame we everyone. We were going to expose. Uh, no, we just, we, well, we did expose. We exposed the fact that Tristan once snitched on me when I was 12 years old, and then. <laughs> that stands no. out in my mind. Thank you very much for having me uh, on this show. I love you, Mom. I love you too, babe. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Chris. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you, Brian Schwartz and Kim Ross for their support. Thank you to Tristan Abraham for his unending uh you know, sounding board and support and helping me do this. Thank you to Tom Bryan and Buddha Blaze. Thank you to my friend Danko Jones for having me on his podcast first and kind of showing me uh, that, you know, we could do this sort of thing. Uh, thank you to Cole Cabana for inspiring me to fall in love with podcasts and think that, you know, his style of podcast could somehow be mutated into this podcast and stuff like that um and uh yeah i think that's it for the thank yous there's probably tons more thank yous there there are i thank you to all the guests that have come on an unbelievable array of people that come from all walks of punk music's past and future uh thank you to you know the people at audio boom for hosting this thing. Thank you to the people at uh, iTunes that put this up each week, you know, and sometimes uh, the episodes don't show up on the main page. But, hey, I appreciate when you guys fix that, and they do show up on the main page. And, uh, yeah, and thank you, everyone, for leaving feedback. And please, uh, once again, if you haven't left feedback or if you're like, yeah, someone else will, why not leave some feedback yourself? Uh, go to iTunes, rate this podcast, leave some feedback. And, yeah, that's it. Thank you once again, though, everyone, for listening. Next week on the show. Oh, my mom and my dad might be back for a part two. Maybe we'll get them together again for a part two. And uh, then I'll fix my life as a teenager because my parents won't be divorced anymore. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't have any illusions of that ever happening. Uh, no, but next week, uh, they will hopefully be back for a part two. And Chris will definitely be back for uh, footnotes. So turn tune into Turned Out of Punk footnotes later on this week where Chris O'Toole and I will not be dissecting my mom and dad's episode uh, for the most part. We will be diving into all the other stuff that's happened in Turned Out of Punk with some special guests and some special contributor guests and things like that. It's going to be a fun Turned Out of Punk footnotes episode. So Chris will be back for that and he'll be back on here one day for a real Turned Out of Punk episode. I promise. And uh, I will force him to do that one day. Speaking of force, next week, if I had a way to force you to listen to this, I would. Because next week on the show, well, I, I had to do this for episode 101. Because next week on the show is kind of the thesis behind this whole podcast played out in one conversation. Back in the mid-late 1980s. In a small suburban town outside of Dallas, Texas, in a park late one night, a self-proclaimed gangbanger from Miami would meet four self-professed uh, loser outcast thrash metal kids from Texas and would spawn a summer-long friendship that would change uh, all their, affect all their lives, 
but also for me later on finding out that this self-professed gangbanger was my friend MVP and finding out that this self-professed uh, outcast thrasher loser metalhead kid self-professed this these were was my friend Zach Blair from Rise Against and Guar and Hagfish and that these people met in a park randomly in the mid fucking 80s they just like met each other like it's it's it's, it's fucking mind blowing and then they fell in a touch and then they fell back in touch at a show and then the macho man's involved and then they fell in a touch again and then I brought them back together for this podcast so they can tell you this whole crazy story. That's right. I, I hope I did this thing justice. No, there's no way I did this thing justice. This episode has to be heard to do it justice. Next week on the show, it's a conversation with myself, MVP, professional wrestler um, from WWE, New Japan Pro Wrestling, TNA, uh, and Zach Blair from, as I said, uh, like uh, Hagfish, uh, Only Crime, Rise Against, uh, Dracula, like so much stuff, like Vanishing Life. They're like really, and these guys met in a park, and there's so many great stories. I'm just so excited for next week's episode. I am really beside myself excited that this happened. Uh, woo, woo! It's a good one next week, guys. It's really is really really exciting. So thank you everyone for listening, and I promise you. Uh, you know, starting with next week, it's just going to, there's a lot more fun stuff coming. I got a lot of cool stuff lined up and, uh, yeah, once again, thank you all for your support. I love you all. Uh, go out there and make your own culture. And I say that every week and it really the hardest part is, is doing it, you know, getting started on something. But once you kind of get into a routine, you can do it, you know, and that goes for putting out records, making zines, being in a band, uh, my band would argue that I'm, I'm, you know, pretty, pretty shitty at coming in to practice and stuff. So maybe I haven't made a routine of that, but you know, a lot, you know, you can make a routine of anything. And so that's what happened with this podcast. And also, uh, go out and check fuckedup.cc for upcoming shows that fucked up is playing. Fucked up's going to be going to the UK. We've got some big stuff happening. So anyway, thank you everyone for listening and I will see you next week with a, uh, podcast defining episode.